This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered. Becca is uh, suffering from injuries due to a jujitsu match. It's true. Yep. I uh, got a little cut on my face yesterday. <laughs> That's crazy. Rogue rogue fingernail. So I've been uh, doing radio for ten and a half years. Never have I had my board operator come in after a jujitsu match with uh, you know facial injuries. Right. I think they said. I think they said they wanted some higher security. That's exactly you're broadcasting, right. yeah. and so. They asked I, if I'd be willing to do both. Yeah. I think it's more like they want me to keep my hands off of the board. Oh, that's probably so they true. Needed somebody they didn't that like knew. the sound effects. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Welcome to my world. Somebody, uh, somebody, you know, she's she's the toughest board op we've ever had. <laughs> wow. That, that is high that, praise. That doesn't Thank take you. much. That's a good point. Ouch. No, I'm. it's not necessarily a dig on you. It's more of a... A dig dig on, on everyone that's worked the for The other us. seven board operators that you could take out. Oh, that's true. Jiu-jitsu. Good one guy that yeah. his toughness was of ice cream, like uh-huh. that consistency. That's but why he made ice cream. He made so. incredible ice cream. Yeah. And then we had uh, another singer, guitar player. Mm. We had a creative artist. Yeah. And we had Jeffrey, who could yeah. do multiple personalities and did. Right. And then and then and now we have interesting, which I think Becca Hurley is the most talented in a variety of ways Uh-oh. because she can <laughs> lull you to sleep in her clown outfit, mm-hmm. and then give you a jujitsu kick to the jaw, right? That just flattens you. She could take you that's out. That's exactly how I've written it on my resume as well. That, that's why we hired you. Thanks. She's incredible. <laughs> she has an, an assaulting personality. Yeah. Man, speaking of assaulting personalities, um, <laughs> President Trump. Just put uh, the brakes on that, didn't I? Yeah, totally. They're, now they're asking a lot of people, a lot of the news are asking uh, senators, Congress people, if congressmen and women, if they would be willing to support Trump running again as president. Yeah. And nobody's tepid, in, tepid nobody's response. in yet. Yeah. But um, – you know, it's it's early. They're they're trying to get the uh, the feel of their home district, the temperature, if you will. Because uh, oh yeah, sometimes the you know, and this is common with all presidents, but sometimes the sitting president will not necessarily help you as much as hurt you in your yeah. home district. So they don't want to you know stand next to him quite yet. Well, I think it was Corker said, "Oh man, we've got we've got a midterm to worry about first. And he makes a really good point. Like if yeah. if you get crushed in the midterm. The president could be in a whole different position <laughs> legally, you know, you know. So anyway, that craziness is going on today. We're also going to be talking about how a lot of a lot of students and this actually impacted me deeply, this story, because whenever like we whenever we give away free food here at BYU Broadcasting, mm. our students jump in like it's a feeding trough like when and they haven't eaten for days. When there's cookies in the break room. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. It's a feeding I, frenzy. And I used to laugh like, oh, those cute students just love cookies or Which donuts or fair. pizza. That's fair. But they're also starving. There's a lot of kids uh, in college that are they're barely making it financially and then they don't have enough money to eat. So one of the uh, – our guests today will be talking about the fact that maybe we ought to be giving food scholarships where – 
they're they're already going in debt to go to school. Maybe we ought to give them free food so that they can actually get good grades. Hmm. That's a really cool idea. It's a really cool idea. So we'll be talking about that with a researcher in that area and uh, a lot of other things about you know being sensitive as we disagree. We've got a lot to cover today. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? North Korea is looking for complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and, and will not try to impose conditions such as the removal of U.S. troops from the area, according to South Korean President Moon Jae-in. What? Speaking to reporters Thursday, Moon insisted the big picture agreements between the two Koreas and the U.S. won't be difficult to agree upon ahead of the summit expected in the coming weeks. North Korea uh, is expressing a will for complete denuclearization, Moon told reporters. They have not attached any conditions that the U.S. cannot accept, which includes like removing troops and everything. Uh, All of the uh, they all they are expressing is the end of hostile policies against North Korea, followed by a guarantee of security. South Korea confirmed Wednesday that it was seeking to bring an official into the six decades of hostility between the North and the wow. South. Wow, is this, it may be time. Is this, it may be time. Could be. Uh, by the way, it may also be Gangnam style. Because now the North Koreans are like, we want to be a part of that. That's a party. <laughs> Don't you think? Oh, K-pop. Something's going on. Gotta look K-pop. They, they sent a uh, delegation, the South, yeah. sent a delegation to North Korea. Consisting of a bunch of K-pop, which yeah, is well, of kind of their popular music, which creates earworms. Well, and <clears throat> No, it doesn't. Fries brain cells. You watch the videos. <laughs> it's a little crazy. Okay. Some of the uh, President Trump's closest confidants are reportedly warning him that Michael Cohen, his longtime personal attorney, could flip, cooperate with the feds, and testify against Trump if he is faced with a potentially long prison sentence. Wow. Cohen's home and office in New York were raided last week by the FBI as federal prosecutors sought proof of his alleged fraud. When somebody is faced with spending a long time in jail, they start to reevaluate their priorities and cooperation can't be ruled out, a Trump ally told Politico. The president has commented publicly on the raid, calling attorney-client privilege dead. Another longtime Trump attorney, Jay Goldberg, told the Wall Street Journal that he has directly warned Trump about the possibility of Cohen flipping. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what the whole point of the FBI, they put all this pressure on you. Yeah. Then then you flip, and then they said he may even wear a wire. Ooh. His attorney, Goldberg, said he may even wear a wire, That which is weird because, you know, that would be really bad because he was at Mar-a-Lago with the president a few weeks ago. The other day, just with uh, since the FBI raid, President Trump has called him just, you know, to check up on him. Buddy. And people are like, why are you doing that? You know they have a tap on his phone. There's no way they don't have his cell phone in a, in a situation oh, where just, they can listen to it. It's just the little kid playing with the socket. <sighs> just, just leave the guy alone. Has a fork playing with the socket. The Federal Aviation Administration announced Wednesday that it was ordering U.S. airlines to inspect certain engine fan blades a day after an engine exploded in midair on a Southwest Airline jet. A female passenger inside the Boeing 737 was killed, and the flight made an emergency landing in Philadelphia. National Transportation Safety Board officials said a preliminary investigation led to led them to believe that a fan blade flung off one of the engines, causing an explosion and flying debris. The pilot, former Navy 
Uh, pilot Tammy Jo Schultz has been called a hero for mm-hmm. her calm response to the engine blowout. One woman died in the incident, but Schultz uh, has been praised for saving the lives of other passengers. Schultz and her first officer, Darren, uh, Darren Elsor, have, been, have refused to do media interviews so far, but spoke through a statement issued by Southwest Airlines. We all feel we were simply doing our job, Schultz and Essler said in a statement posted on the airline's Twitter feed. Our hearts are heavy on behalf of the entire crew. We appreciate the outpouring of support from the public and our co-workers as we all reflect on one family's profound wow. loss. Yeah, unbelievable. That woman, as she was partially sucked out the window, yeah. had her seatbelt on. So uh, think of the force to, to do that. It's mother crazy. of two... I think some caregiver of some sort. She was a wonderful woman. She was a banking marketing executive, I believe, out of New Mexico. So, Finally, uh, this is a a cautionary tale. Uh So in the future, Matt, don't soak your clothes in gasoline and then try to toss them in a dryer. Oh, hold on. What? Slow down. So don't soak your clothes in gasoline and put them in a dryer. Can I soak them in kerosene? That's not for everyone, though. No. That's just for Matt. Yeah, specifically. I think maybe your life, somewhere along the way, (laughs) this would be a situation. A washing machine full of gasoline-soaked clothing exploded in a Logan, Utah laundromat Tuesday afternoon, blowing out the windows but sparing injury for the handful of people who were inside. Police said a customer had soaked his tar-stained laundry in gasoline overnight in order to remove the residue. Once he turned on the washer in the laundromat, the vapor ignited, sending parts of machines flying, said Logan City Fire Marshal. It's remarkable we had no injuries, he said. When officers arrived, they could smell gasoline. They saw the aftermath from an obvious explosion, which included small spots of fire, he said. The police did not release the name of the man whose clothes sparked the explosion. He said there were three or four people inside the laundromat at the time. Uh, Sergio Gonzalez, who was waiting for his clothes to dry, said that he heard what sounded like a bomb go off, and then he started running, but he felt the force of the blast like somebody was pushing you away. Holy cow. So don't soak your clothes uh, in, uh, in gas and then try on. to wash it. I want it. to write that down. Yeah, it's a tip. It's I just a life want to tip. know, was this like a do-it-yourself article, you know, life hacks, <laughs> yeah. soak all your life laundry hacks. in gasoline? How, like, how do I get tar out of my clothing? I want to Google this right now and see if gasoline is anywhere on the front page. Yeah. I would crazy. say probably soak it in gasoline, yeah. remove the tar, then soak it in water. Yeah. Maybe rinse the gas maybe out. Maybe do that outdoors or, like or in, in your – Maybe just throw the clothes away. <laughs> maybe that's, that's a great option. way to do it. I'm not sure. But, you know, maybe it's like overalls or something and you hey, don't want to toss them. But whatever them. you do, don't do it at your house. Do it at a laundromat. <laughs> right. Go down to the what, the place my wife and I had Seems used like in the, the past. is called a swishy-washy. Yeah. Go to the swishy-washy. Yeah, I'm sure the swishy-washy <laughs> is all over the – Streety weedy. I found the problem. He was using gasoline instead of olive oil. That's what uh, you're supposed to yeah. use. It's olive oil for tar. Yeah, less combustible. I hate getting those mixed up. What's more expensive now, gas or olive oil? Ooh, well, per gallon. Extra virgin olive oil. Oh yeah, you're right. That's, That's like fifteen dollars a gallon. Yeah. But do you want to get the stains out? I just go. I go with the virgin, not the extra virgin olive oil. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. That's how I. But like cold it. pressed, imported. Oh boy. You do you do olive oil, jujitsu, and clown. Yeah, amazing. Becca Hurley's <laughs> the greatest board operator in the history of the world. I'm gonna write home to my mom about that and say I've been put, praised for my olive oil skills today, yeah, and put I think she'll be your, really proud of me. She's like, really good stuff. Well, we will continue the journey. Up next, we're going to be talking about uh, scholarships. Maybe food scholarships is uh, going to be in the future for students at universities. 
they're hungry. They're not doing their best work because they uh, they can't focus and they can't afford the food they need. We'll continue uh, investigating it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. With the cost of college education rising more and more, um, our students today are struggling to make ends meet. As a result, some are going hungry, and that makes it incredibly difficult for them to focus and succeed in school. Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Daphne Hernandez, who's a researcher who focuses on poverty and believes that campus hunger is a significant factor behind inequality in college completion rates and that food scholarships may be the solution. Dr. Daphne Hernandez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So talk to us about it. How common is um, is it for college students not to have enough food? Yeah, so we're realizing um, that this is this basic need that we have not really focused upon um, college students. So for many years, we've been focusing on tuition and their books, but we've never haven't thought about their basic needs, such as food and housing. And we're finding, um, depending on the school, we're finding that, you know, it can be up to 50% of the students are experiencing food insecurity, which is the limited access to food because of resources. Um, And it does vary. Um, There's definitely higher rates among community college students. Yeah, but 50% is, that's incredible. I mean, I see it here at Brigham Young University. We bring out some pizza, we bring out food, and these students are, it's like they haven't seen food for a while. And it's probably, I always thought it was just, you know, they're eating a lot of top ramen and, and not uh, eating healthy food. But I, it never dawned on me that a lot of these people are really at the end of their rope that financially. Yeah, we've never really thought about in terms of um, why students may be, you know, falling asleep in class, why students may not be doing as well academically. Um, What we're finding out that these students are working harder than ever. They are not only attending college, but they are working full-time jobs and sometimes working the night shift. Um, So they're definitely working hard to make ends meet, um, but definitely having a hard time doing so. Um, colleges, you know, I recommend colleges looking at their retention rates and, and thinking about, you know, it may not be that uh, courses are as challenging as they perceive. It's that they are students are doing other things to pay off that tuition, to pay off um, basic needs, and, and not doing as well. And consequently, we have students dropping out of college not because they find the work challenging you know, the schoolwork challenging is that they need to fulfill a basic need, which is housing and food. Well, and and they may have come from um, a a family maybe where they were also receiving subsidized foods like CHIP programs or other programs, and then all of a sudden you turn into an 18-year-old and go to college. It doesn't mean your family all of a sudden has money to give you money for food, and then they're on their own. And and so, yeah, you're you're suggesting that this is – one of the factors behind the inequality and why some groups uh, are are not able to complete college rates like other groups. Right. So what's really interesting is that we have these policies and programs in place during childhood. We have WIC 
that focuses on children from ages zero to five. We have the National School Lunch Program that is available for children from the moment they enter kindergarten through um, 12th grade. But after that point, we don't have uh, programs that really focus on children that become adults and are trying to uh, complete college. So, um, you know, as students enter college, two things are happening. They're losing that support um, in terms of food, if we think about the National School Lunch Program, and they could also be losing support in terms of their families. Um, Some families um, choose not to support their children when they enter college, and some families just cannot financially support their children as they enter college. So there's a lot of mixed factors that are going on as children enter college, and it makes it very difficult to complete. Hmm. Are there any universities or colleges or community colleges that have any programs to address this issue right now? Yes. So several colleges around um, the United States are actively trying to reduce uh, food insecurity. They have placed food pantries in in, um, in, at their universities. Uh, Right now, I am teaming up with the Houston Food Bank and Houston Community College, and we're providing what's called a food scholarship to students. This is um, similar to a farmer's market. Uh, Students can attend food distributions twice a month, and they're able to obtain up to 60 pounds of food. So it's a very innovative and different idea, different approach from your typical food pantry. Um, But it is a different different strategy that we're hoping to see um, positive effects in the long term. Excellent. Is it? um, And then I'm assuming with all of these things, we always research and evaluate the 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 benefit of it um, is that something that you're that you're actually researching now? Yes. So thank you. Thanks to the Kresge Foundation and the William T. Grant Foundation, uh, my colleague Dr. Sarah Golder Grab from Temple University and I are evaluating the food scholarship program for a period of two years. Um, we're looking at the effects of the food scholarship on college persistence specifically academic outcomes. Um, And we're just hoping that, I mean, we have a positive sense that this will be good um, for the students and um, consequently for for the college as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because the whole idea of education would be to give these people a leg up, get them on their way, help them create the life they want to create. And yet it could be something as simple as food that they, that is, that's going to hinder this. Um, and and yet, uh, are there other solutions? I mean, I mean, it seems like you're at a university. We give these students, athletes, have food passes. We give. I mean, it's it's kind of a common thing feeding students on a university. It just seems more like you just need to somehow allocate funds. Right. I mean, we we kind of the way we're perceiving it is fairly simple solution. I mean, yeah. it's food. We have, I mean, it's the United States. We do actually have an abundance of food. Um, what, e- what can be easier than providing um, students food, help them um, complete college, and help them lift themselves out of poverty? Long term, this could have national implications where we're not only helping students complete college, but it could um, lower the number of students who are on food assistance programs, you know, down the road, become adults. Right. So, 
um, we're seeing it as a fairly simple solution. Yeah. Well, and, and boy, it, it does show you, though, it, it could be a cycle, right? You And you're undernourished your entire childhood. You're undernourished going through college. It, it, it's hard. And I'm assuming, too, that even getting some of these um, supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits or even food pantries that can help, a lot of people may not know the, where the resources are located. True. Um, so a lot of students may not even know that they're aware for some of these programs or that the food, you know, food pantries are open to all. Um, they're, you know, you, you don't need to qualify. Um, and that is also a challenge. So students may have not been um, on SNAP or WIC or National uh, School Lunch Program their t- entire lives. They get to college, they see these challenges, and they may not be aware that these programs exist or that a food pantry is open to anyone. And mm. so getting that message out and communicating um, that there are these resources available is, is critical. Yeah, absolutely. We're speaking with Daphne Hernandez, uh, who earned her Ph.D. in Applied Developmental and Educational Psychology at Boston College and is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Health and Human Performance at the University of Houston um, and is talking to us today about how food scholarships could help more students finish college, where they could actually get uh, some some help with their food and, and getting free food so that they could actually have the energy and the ability to focus at school as well. Do you do you think there would be stigmas associated with this? I mean, I could see there's already uh, some stigma associated with using stamps or any type of government assistance. Um, do you see that being a problem? Yes. Uh, we are concerned about that, um, that there could be a stigma, and so students don't want to accept it. Um, you know, it could, be, it could be, again, something where they haven't um, needed assistance, and now they do, and so they feel the shame um, that they are not able to um, help themselves, you know, independently. But, um, you know, we all need help from time to time, and if this means that accepting this program, accepting food from either a food pantry or food scholarship will help you long term, then I encourage students to do it. Um, we all need help at, at some point in our lives. Oh, absolutely. And I think in the end, we'd, we, it just is a no-brainer. Um, but again, yeah, you're always up against you know bias and history and all of these other things. What can we just do uh, I mean, as just an average Joe sending my kids off to school, um, are there things I can do to make sure that I'm not uh, overlooking this problem, even for my own kids or for the for the for others? Are there ways that I can help? Um, well, of course, asking your your kids, you know, did you you know did you eat? Did you you know do you have enough uh, money for food? Uh, but also letting letting your children know that they can talk to their professors about this. So I think there's also another stigma of letting professors know that they, that students are facing these challenges. Um, as professors, we're the first line of defense. Um, if a student comes to me and has a challenge, I will make it my priority to see how I can reduce that challenge so that student can do well in my course. And so there are things that universities can do for students that are having difficulties. And I think, you know, there's there's two things going on there. There's the whole bias, like not wanting to um, acknowledge that, that 
you're um, facing these challenges, but also not aware that the university can assist students in some way, um, at least temporarily, to address address the issue. Well, boy, and yeah, if a student's, because a lot of the professors are the front line, right? Because they're talking to the students. And if you see that they just don't seem right, something doesn't, they don't seem healthy, then what a, I mean, to know the resources would be so valuable. Yes. Yes. Um, You know, if I see a student falling asleep, um, I mean, I think this is just um, really important for all faculty. Um, If students are falling asleep in your class, don't take it personally and think they're disinterested. It could be something else. And, um, you know, we we as faculty should really make an effort um, to assist students, not just on educational front, but on basic needs. And if basic needs are met, then they will do much better educationally. Absolutely. Daphne Hernandez, thank you so much for your time, your insights, uh, and just helping us learn about something that seems obvious, and yet many of us just we don't even see it as as part of our life. Powerful, uh, powerful opportunities, folks, to lift those around us by simply making sure we're paying attention to the basic needs of of those that we're engaged with. We might even see this at work. You might see this in anywhere in your life that people aren't just lethargic for no reason. Maybe they're also undernourished as well. We will continue doing what we can, folks, to bring you the information, the ideas you need to uh, elevate life, right, and make life and the world a better place for one another. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, many times your spouse, they may seem a little critical, but they also may just be trying to give you uh, some some ideas, some creative criticism. Maybe it's anything to get you to try something different, to do something different. And so today I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how do you take criticism from your spouse? And uh, many would be like, well, I shouldn't have to. Well, you shouldn't have to. But um, uh, it may not – it may be that they simply don't know how to frame it in, a, in any other way other than it sounding critical. Or it might be, honestly, that you are just kind of sensitive to feedback, especially accurate feedback. I know many times uh, I, I just wish people would just not give me feedback. Except deep down, I also know – you need the feedback, right? So um, remember, uh, I'm going to give you just some rules that I've learned as I uh, work with people, as I get feedback myself, as I'm in my own relationships. Uh, Generally, if you kind of um, recognize one simple rule about feedback or criticism is that all criticism is more of a reflection of the person giving the criticism than it is of you, right? So um, you know, some people might nitpick certain things. Others might nitpick other things. And if you notice the feedback you're getting, many times it's very much customized to what the needs are, the ideas are, what what one person feels is appropriate or not appropriate. So it, it's not something you necessarily need to 
be offended by. It's not something you necessarily need to take um, any serious offense by. So I guess recognize where the criticism is coming from. Recognize that, you know, if they're if they're critiquing how much money you make, you know, there's probably a history here of of why they're bringing up money. And it might be that they came from money. It might be that they money's really important to them. Um, another another thing I always believe is check your sources, right? So a lot of times people will criticize you maybe about your your home cleaning skills, how clean the house is, but that may also be the exact same person that never, ever, 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 ever cleans the house. And so it's easy for them to maybe criticize, but they don't help clean the house is um, notice the notice when the conversation and when we're getting the feedback. Uh, if the criticism is coming in in the most angry, volatile, negative, ugly part of the conversation, I wouldn't weigh it so heavily, if that makes sense. Sometimes uh, you don't trust. I had a person once say, you know, uh, you always trust a drunk person because drunk people always tell the truth. And I'm like, you know... Kind of, I guess, but they also wet themselves and they also, you know, can't stand up straight. So I don't know how much I would weigh what they're saying when they're drunk. And it might be true to their heart because they're willing to say it when they're intoxicated, but it also doesn't mean it's any more accurate when they're drunk. It's also no more accurate when they're really angry. So if someone's really angry and then they get all critical, I don't know that I would weigh it as more truthful. What it might be telling you is, boy, when the, the, they are keeping some things back, or it also might be telling you that when they have no filters on, they, uh, they'll say anything. Um, is your partner sometimes... Um, you might notice that you're more critical of your kids when they're doing things that you wish you wouldn't do, right? So when I see my kids biting or picking at their nails, I get mad because I'm like, don't do that because I do that. And I want you to not be like me. Stop doing that. So check your sources. Uh, there, there might be reasons why the criticism is coming out. Um, it also might be just their pet peeve, their obsession. They may have been raised that you make your bed and you make it a certain way and it's made the minute the person gets up, it's made. And it's just, you know, that is just your spouse's pet peeve. And if it's their pet peeve, you don't always need to take that as, you know, normal or the law. One thing you could do too when somebody's trying to, to push a lot of feedback or criticism on you is start looking for the truth in what they're saying. And so if you can find some truth in what they're saying, then what you could do is just take the truth, no matter how small, work on that and disregard the rest. You know, there is power in being able to show other people that you actually can see truth. So when somebody says, man, you spend a lot of time on your phone, don't immediately deny it. No, I don't. Find out where there's truth. You know what? I really do. I love listening to podcasts. I love whatever, whatever, whatever. Find the truth that that, that is there and, and see if you can't work with the truth. In healthy relationships, there usually is more truth in criticism than actually criticism. 
It's just somebody that's that's trying to help give you some information. They also are a lot of times with people that actually care about you and are trying to help you be better. Um, underneath the criticism is actually a deeper pain that they might be having. If my wife is upset with me always being on my phone, it might be really what she wants is more attention from me, more work, more help, more support around the house. The, and, and so if you think about it, if you wanted to give somebody effective critical feedback, it might be smarter to share what you really want instead of just critiquing what you don't like. Sometimes it doesn't do any good to just tell everybody what you don't like to see. I don't like to see you on your phone or why do we always eat the same thing every day? Maybe it might be better to tell what you'd like to see more of. Is there any way I could help and find ways to to find some new recipes? How could I help make a meal with a new recipe this week? That might actually be a better way to do it. So you could actually acknowledge what they're saying, admit what they're what they're what's truthful about what they're saying, accept it, actually appreciate what they're doing. I totally agree with you. I'm on my phone all the time. I admit that it's I a lot of times defer to my phone to when I'm bored or when I'm when I have downtime and and I'm sorry it makes you upset. And I'll work on making it better. And then actually make a plan to to do something better. Don't turn though as we're doing and getting feedback and critique from others, don't turn over your self-esteem to the other person. They shouldn't have the on and off switch to you feeling like you're worth something. And a lot of this I think comes from just our childhood if you know, if we if we would be critiqued by a parent and it impacted us as a child and we felt, you know, put down and deeply unloved and uncared for, sometimes just recognize if you're feeling those same feelings today, that doesn't mean you have to take the feedback today like a child, like you would have taken it as a child 25 years ago or 40 years ago. You can actually relook at it today and put it through another filter. Maybe they don't know what they're saying. Maybe they don't understand how this is impacting you. But don't empower anyone to to change your moods consistently. You, in the end, are a, you're an entity. You're an agent. You're a free agent, quite honestly. And um, being a free agent allows you to choose how you're going to feel about the feedback, what you're going to do about the feedback. I found personally when I feel most guilty or hurt by feedback, there is a lot of truth in it, and I'm already really upset with myself, which is why I don't want them highlighting my weakness. I'm already mad, and I'm already down that I don't do that. I'm already down that I'm not doing the better job here. I'm already – so thanks for the feedback, um, but it, but me being down doesn't discount the truth of it either. There's actually – I think we're supposed to feel guilt, and guilt is what's designed to get us to make a change and do something different. Don't let the guilt turn into shame where all of a sudden we feel like we're not worth anything. That's just a trick your mind plays on you to uh, you know, to be able to be angry at someone else sometimes. Oh, that person. I'm so sick of people speaking truth about things I already knew that I'm not doing that I knew I should be doing but I'm not. <laughs> when you think about it that way, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's just feedback, folks, and uh, I get it. I mean, I'm very sensitive to it as well. It's just it doesn't elevate my life being hypersensitive to to feedback, and I don't want to empower too many people to uh, 
you know, to have that kind of energy change in me. I don't want them to have those keys to just automatically make me feel incredibly happy or incredibly sad just by how they're responding. I do have a buffer inside of me that can reinterpret how things go. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. It's a life of feedback. We're all going to get it one way or another. And interestingly, the more successful you get, the more powerful you get, the higher you get up on the ladder, the more people are sometimes trying to mix you up a bit, make it a little harder for you, and more people have an opinion about you. It's not always fun, is it? We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, Kim joined the show to talk about how best to handle disagreements that become emotional. I began the interview by talking about how emotional issues can be a point of conflict and asking what can that division and disagreement do to a person and those you disagree with? Anytime you've got a real emotional issue, you can have close friends, family members, maybe even your spouse who disagrees with you on this issue. And that can be rough. You had a couple write to you because they're they're struggling in their marriage because one of them feels one way, the other feels another way. They don't they don't know how to kind of cut through it all. Right. And they they said they they tried to make a rule to just not talk about yeah. it at all. And inevitably, it's There's all over the place, yeah. right? It just It's in front of our face all the time. Yeah. The story comes on the news. And, and one of them will make a comment, and that just gets this argument going again. And, totally. and they said they feel bad because they adore their spouse, mm-hmm. but they really want their spouse to agree with them. And so they're, they're really campaigning to get their spouse to agree with them. Isn't that – and it's it's interesting too. We want to be united on this. This is why I think it's such an important issue because as soon as we kind of make it through this storm of this, we will have learned to collaborate and be together on issues, not not always agreeing, but knowing how to handle it better. Right. And and the reason I answered their question in, in my column was – that this is really a microcosm for our whole society right. right now, right? We're all our country is very divided, and it's not just this issue. No. There's politics. Quite I mean, a how few. many, how many men and women may not agree on the the whole issue about Trump and what he said about a woman journalist? Oh yeah. I mean, well, and so I everyone even, can fight I about that. I know couples who one's liberal and one's yeah. conservative, and, totally. and they feel very strongly. So, so what what advice do you give? What do we do? Well. The number one thing that I teach my clients is a different perspective about life and why we're here and why there are differences. And see, I really believe that we're on the planet to learn and especially to learn to love, to learn to love the way God loves, to love ourselves and other people. I think that is the main purpose of us being on the planet. Now, God could have made all of us exactly the same. And that would have made this a lot easier. Oh, so much easier. (laughs) And with so few, if he could have made fewer choices. Oh, yeah. Just for all of us. But isn't it, it's interesting that on this planet, we've got all these different races and cultures and opinions and different types of people. And I really believe that it was intentionally created this way because differences challenge us Mm -hmm. to learn to love at a different level than we would go if all we deal with is people who agree with us. 
And so I told this couple, the one thing that you've got to understand about your marriage is you always marry your greatest teacher. Yeah. You sign up That's for so this true. class. Even if you didn't know you were or you didn't intend it to be. And usually you don't when you get married. Right. You don't realize that this person this person is going to be able to push buttons in you that no one else can push. So true. So inevitably, they're going to have this beautiful opportunity to help you become a better, wiser, stronger, more loving person. Right. But you've got to be seen it that way. So that every interaction, every disagreement, everything that happens between you and your spouse, you recognize it's today's lesson so cool. on love. And this person is is really in your life to help you and serve you. Instead of thinking you. they're just evil or yeah, they or just wrong. don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's a teaching moment. Everything's a teaching moment. And if the highest lesson is love, but so can I still have I could still disagree in the the premise of gay marriage. I could still have a religious belief that says it's not what God wants, and I could still love the person. Well, just recognize that this person having an opposite opinion of you could be your perfect opportunity to grow and mm-hmm. learn how to love people who are different. And and I, you know, we've talked about this on the yeah. radio before because I have an African American daughter. Um, oh, I, I have a gay uncle. Yeah. Okay, so so I really feel strongly about this principle in my life that all human beings have the same value. Yeah, and my job is to learn to love them, and not not judge, not mm-hmm. convince, not right. tell them they're wrong, but right. right, but love and support them. And so, if I can love and support and, and get the get the paradigm in there that this is a learning moment, that and the number one learning here is love. And then what do we do with the differences? Okay. Because <laughs> that's like – because it seems like it's the, it's the difference that divi- – everyone always says, well, of course I love them. Yeah. But what they're doing is messed agree. up and we don't like that. And I don't want my kids to think that. Okay. So one other principle of human nature I just want our listeners to understand is that everybody on the planet has attached their ideas and opinions, everything they think and feel is literally attached to who they are. Yeah. They think – what they think and feel is who they are. Right. So if you immediately tell them they're wrong, you're unwilling to listen, to honor and respect their right to their opinion, you need to understand that they literally will feel that you're disrespecting and devaluing them. Mm -hmm. You can't devalue their thoughts and feelings without devaluing them. So it's really important you understand that so you handle this in a way that still validates their worth as equal as yours even though their opinion is different from yours. So that that's the key, huh? Because if, if you can't validate their worth, this is really about their worth. This doesn't change their worth, their value, their – you always use the diamond metaphor. It doesn't change the value of the diamond, yeah, the setting Yeah, their intrinsic in. worth as a human still, soul just because they have a different opinion. You just have to figure out how to communicate that without – and not and, and reassure them that you know that that you believe they're beautiful, amazing, wonderful people. That's right. So hmm. you first off, when somebody has a different opinion, you've got to keep in mind, even if you disagree with their opinion, that you value them. Yeah. As a person, and in valuing them, that means you've got to honor and respect their right to be where they are in their journey. And one of the things I talked about in the article, I believe life's a classroom, but I believe no one on the entire planet got the same class as I got. No, exactly. Yeah. And so my One spouse, my friends, they've had a totally different journey. And really their opinions and their perspective is a 
is a result of what they've experienced mm. and what they've learned. And because I've had different experiences, I see the world in a different way. That's even if so. Even if you come from the same minority group, if you come from the same sex or gender, if you come from the same church, nobody. You're saying nobody's no, had well, your <laughs> same game. My husband and I, we have all those things in common, but he grew up in a really small town. He was a country boy. Yeah. He wasn't exposed to a lot of people who are different variety. I was a city girl. Yeah. I came from a very different type of family, even though we have the same religion yeah. and race yeah. and all those things. Our viewpoint is really different. I have seen the world from a totally different place than he's seen That's it. right. So that's the first thing you've got to take into account is that this person is really the sum result of their experiences. Mm -hmm. And they can only see the world the way they see it. That's all they can see. So you can't expect them to be able to see what you can see. Which is kind of your job really is if we could could all talk about this in a way that I could share what I see and you could see what I see, hear it. You don't have to agree with it, but try to see it from my frame of reference. That's what makes like the same-sex marriage thing such an interesting thing because more and more people have somebody they know, they care about, they love that's gay. And it's a totally different it's experience totally when different, you're talking yeah. about my family, uh-huh. somebody that I love versus those people that right. I just think of as yeah, strange that I people don't that get. I don't yeah. know. I think the same thing is true. If, you, if you're in a situation where you're not around a lot of African Americans and you don't get you – don't, you don't get that they're you. Well, they're just you. I know. My daughter, poor daughter has that experience I mean, all the she, time in, around exactly. here because people – this is not a diverse no, area. No. People really say the wrong Which thing. Which is why it's so important know. to have her there so that we can start changing – the views and, and 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 understand her as just she's a human. But I have to explain to her often that these people who make the stupid comment to her, yeah. it's not that they're racist. Mm. It, it's just that they haven't had experience and they're seeing the world from <laughs> where like, they've been and they don't know uh, anything different. So we've got to have some wisdom and compassion about other people and their experiences and know that you know maybe as life goes on and they have different experiences. Their perspectives will change, mm-hmm. and we kind of have to give them that. But it's really important we're respecting and honoring their right to be where they are and to know what they know yeah. and have that perspective. They have that right. It's the only perspective they could possibly Yeah, what else are they going to bring? Well, and it's also – because this can go both ways. So, I mean, you could go to the most liberal city with the most liberal group of people that are supposedly so open-minded to everything, and they'll tolerate everything except religious conservatism. <laughs> Yeah, you know which, what I mean? which is, is like the they're a bunch of foreigners, <laughs> hicks from the sticks. So I mean, it really can go everywhere, and it's so it's almost like whoever makes you uncomfortable is a great lesson. This is an important lesson for you, and it is probably in your life specifically because you need it. <laughs> which is why you're uncomfortable. <laughs> That's, That's why right. you're uncomfortable. That's so I mean, true. I think the universe is going to throw at you exactly what you need to overcome to learn yeah. to love that. That was Kim Giles, uh, one of our contributors from Clarity Point Coaching and uh, doing what we can to uh, open our minds and open our hearts. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll continue the journey. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. 
Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Along with Becca and Terry, the gang is gathered. Today we're going to be talking about how to lead when you lack authority. Can Don't you I still know it. Oh, wait. <laughs> Can you still be a leader if you have no authority, no position, no hierarchy? Yes, if you are a clown fighting jujitsu master. There you go. Just watch also out for known the... as Becca Hurley. Man, watch. I love the relatable programs. I feel like every morning I hear something that speaks right to me. Right to you. Yep. It's true because uh, there there are many ways to lead, and some sometimes, uh, as Becca found out, fighting in a jujitsu, she leads with her chin. With the chin, that's right. <laughs> I'm sporting uh, I'm sporting a a large band aid on my chin. I would say a huge band aid, <laughs> because you you were jujitsu fighting with somebody that Who's... hadn't clipped their nails. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. They were billions and billions <laughs> of times too long. Thank you. And um, really long, really, really long nails. Gross. Yeah. But <laughs> toenails, yuck. Again, she wins the yeah, prize. Been, actually. For the toughest. I mean, the the, right. o- the only other injury we've ever had is like a shaving injury Yeah, on the show. And that's just lack of skill. That's just, just lack of lack skill. Lack of creativity and explaining the cut on your face. Well, exactly. that too. <laughs> Come so, up with a better story than shaving accident. Yeah. I did notice it was the first thing I noticed when I walked in the room today. Well, you, yeah. how can you miss it's it? It's pretty. I know. Prominent. I walked in and went, "What, what was that?" Uh, I had to take a second look. Like, I thought she was wearing I a go, scarf. Then I was like, "Okay, so how do I have the conversation with Matt? Like, do we point out the bandage, or do we just?" And you, you went ahead know? and took care of it. Thanks, I just, Matt. I just asked. Just like, you know, in. you've got something on your chin, don't you? Which is which is okay because I, I feel pretty proud of it actually. You know, it's, it's kind of the red badge of courage. Yeah. Ask me about my jujitsu class. <laughs> I mean, that was the first thing I did is I took a picture and like I sent it to my dad. Did you really? Dad, look, last day of martial arts class. I'm it's, tough. It's I mean, she's. Tough. I didn't tap, Dad. <laughs> I didn't tap out. <laughs> I didn't exactly. Give up. I did bleed out all over the mat though. <laughs> but I didn't tap. <laughs> oh, so good. Okay, so we'll be talking about um, more about uh, Becca's chin. Also, we'll get into uh, what to do when you lack authority, plus how to handle, you know, sensitive disagreements. Sometimes you just don't agree with people. We'll get. We'll talk about how to handle that. Do you find the sore spot and you just sort of dig in? Yeah, I like. To, it's like a bruise. You just push on the bruise. Okay. With your fingernails. Yeah, but make sure you've clipped your fingernails so you don't. You know, there's a moment where you can make a comment that would make it totally worse. Whatever oh, the disagreement yeah. is. Oh yeah. And there's times where I sit there and I'm like, okay, how do I feel? Do I want to get out of this situation or do I have a couple minutes? Do I want to start? Yeah. Do I want to really get this party started? And you just dig in. It's do really I want kind to of double down on really this, fun. this fight. Uh, anyway, speaking of doubling down on the fights, uh, let's get to the headlines about the president. Anything going on, Terry, we should be paying attention to. During a joint press conference with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe Wednesday evening in Florida, President Trump said he could meet with North Korean Kim, leader Kim Jong-un as early as June, and we'll do everything possible to ensure that the summit is a worldwide success. Trump said the United States will exert maximum pressure on North Korea to give up its nuclear program, and he wants to see the two Koreas live together in safety, prosperity, and peace. Good. Yeah. yeah. Worldwide success. I mean, it really is what is being told to us by South Korea about mm-hmm. what North Korea is willing to do. This could be groundbreaking. They want security. They probably want some food. Yeah. And we'll give up our weapons. Well, and they probably want to be brought into the world community so their people aren't starving. And so Kim Jong-un can finally, you know, get into the Hollywood scene like he wants to. (laughs) 
<laughs> he wants to make movies in North Korea. Once the meeting is underway, if it goes south, which yeah. I found offensive, why does everything have to go south? Well, yeah. Only when you're in the north. Why can't I go that? north? Right. Why can't I go north? Why is yeah. why is the south such well, a Well, they bad are thing? in the north, right. It's yeah. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So once, once the meeting is underway, if it goes south and it's not fruitful, Trump plans to respectfully leave the meeting. Really, yeah. He'll respectfully. respectfully. Yeah, he'll like bow. Yeah. And walk away. Right. It's urgent that we end nuclear weapons, ideally in all parts of the world, Trump declared, and uh, also said that the U.S. is fighting very diligently to get three American impri- Americans imprisoned in North Korea their freedom. Earlier in the day, Trump spoke about CIA Director Mike Pompeo's secret trip to meet with Kim over Easter weekend. Trump said it was last week. Interesting story there. The Washington Post over the weekend, where they found word of the story that Pompeo went to North Korea yeah. over Easter. They published that. They asked the White House for uh, clarification, confirmation on the sure. story. White House said no comment. President Trump the next day goes, yeah, he went there last week. And then the White House had to clarify, no, it was over Easter weekend. Right? So <laughs> this game you play. I mean, it, it just shows you they do really need a communications officer. Yeah. But it doesn't matter no. because. It would just be chaos. And the chaos. same thing happened with Nikki Haley about mm-hmm. stepping on toes and saying one thing and then the president changes his mind. Word is that she was, like, ready to quit. Yeah. Don't. Don't. Don't embarrass me in front of the nation when I know what we've talked about. Yeah. And then tell me that I'm confused. Right. So they had to kind of go over there and like, we're sorry, yeah. we didn't mean no, to, you know. President, you're confused. Uh, so Mike Pompeo, they said the trip went really well. He goes, uh, him and Kim Jong-un got, a well, got along really well, really great, is how the president characterized the meeting. Really? Really well, really great. This, that's great. And, it, and the neat thing will be, what if, or not neat, but interesting, what if Pompeo can't get can't pass as being the next Secretary of State. Yeah. What if he doesn't get through the hearings? We'll see what happens there. Oh, that's because he's going to need Democratic help. He needs at least one, they feel. Because yeah. Rand Paul isn't going to vote for him. Even though he's going to meet with them, he yeah. goes, it'll take a, long, a, lot of, a lot of moving the stick, he called it, Rand Paul, to get him to vote for Pompeo. Wow. So we'll see. Senator Ted Cruz, he has a Democratic challenger there in Texas, yeah. Representative Beto O'Rourke. Uh, O'Rourke has made a stunning gains in the polls in recent weeks, with the race now officially too close to call. Quinnipiac University reported this on Wednesday. Cruz has a slight lead of 47 to 44 over his challenger, with a margin of error of 3.6 points. While Texas is a deep red state, the last time a Democrat was elected to the Senate was in 1988. O'Rourke has additionally out-fundraised Cruz in three of the last four Whoa. reporting periods raking in a stunning $6.7 million in the first quarter of 2018. So this is for the midterm election? Yes. What if what if T- Ted Cruz loses? Yeah. That's <laughs> what they're looking at. That is crazy. In Texas, which would be crazy. Yeah. The Pittsburgh Bureau of Police, the PBP, uh-huh. I guess, has instructed detectives to begin wearing a full uniform and carrying riot gear with them in anticipation of massive protests if President Trump fires special counsel Robert Mueller. Yeah. The email announcement, which was confirmed by a local TV station in Pittsburgh, warns that we have received information of a potential large-scale protest in the Central Business District that would be semi-spontaneous and more than likely happen on short notice. Beginning Thursday, all major crimes detectives are required to bring a full uniform and any issued protective equipment or riot gear with them to work until further notice. Uh, The local TV station contacted the Pittsburgh mayor's office and they confirmed that, yes, the instructions are real, although just precautionary. 
Why Pittsburgh? There's something about Pittsburgh. What's the, with Pittsburgh? And the PBP. And the PBP. It's like that's such a weird place. You'd think maybe D.C. Yeah. I don't know what's what. New what, York. Maybe, but Pittsburgh? Well, they do have the Penguins. Is that what it is? Probably. It's a hockey team? Yeah. <laughs> Finally, NASA on Wednesday launched the Planet Hunting Spacecraft Tess which aims to search for evidence of life on other planets. SpaceX Falcon rocket, which powered tests into space, was launched from Cape Canaveral two days after the mission was temporarily halted. The spacecraft is carrying the Transisting, er, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Oh, hold on. Can you say that again? Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Wow. Tess. Tess. Which scientists believe will identify thousands of planets and find E.T. Yeah. No? No. We're not going to find aliens? No. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I, I know where to find E.T., by the way. Where's that? He's on Netflix. He used uh, to be. No. Unless you, they cancel him. Because uh, have you seen his fingers? Oh, yeah. Totally arthritic. That's right. Oh, so he, so all you have to do is go to a doctor that handles arthritis. And there he is. And he'll be sitting there holding a paper up trying to cover his head. Talking about phoning home? Wow. My, this, wi- my wife hmm. hates that movie. Why? It scared her as a child. Oh, yeah. So my boy and I, we always touch index fingers and say, ouch, just to... Just to just to wig mom out? Back to our sensitive disagreements yeah. we were talking about, where you just kind of, you uh-huh. know there's something that's going to cause a problem. You have to, do I want this fight? My son and I, we enjoy causing that issue. By the way, I started watching the show that you and your son are watching. Lost in Space? That is a great show. Yeah, it's fun. No, what? But honestly, your kid probably shouldn't be. It's terrifying. It's PG. I know, but right. So they they amp up the tension. Yeah, but they don't actually take you to that point where something horrible happens. Fuel drinking eels. Yeah, you got to that far. Yeah, let's not ruin it for everybody. But they there. You walk into a bar and a bunch of eels yeah. are sitting there drinking fuel. Wow. I was, I was like, totally. I mean, that's totally, where the tagline. I'm sold. I'm with totally my, scared. Check this out. With my six year old, I'm like. Ooh, what's in the water? <laughs> oh, what is it, Dad? I don't know. Is it a monster? Probably. They're on an alien planet. And he goes, <gasps> it's a monster. And your son, I bet, relates to this boy. Yeah, probably. That's really intense. Yeah, way, way to ruin another child. No, Lost in Space is a good show. It's a great show on Netflix, yeah. And it's PG, so you, you don't have to worry about maybe your kids getting too, too scared. Yeah. There's a little tension. I mean, yeah, they did... And they, it's it's not the campy Lost in Space from no. the past. It's more of a serious take on it. But they and they and they do have three D printers. They and, do, and they can print guns. Yeah, and then erase files so that causes a mystery. Oh, it's again intense. giving way too much of the <laughs> show. Anyway, that bar scene with the ills a must see. I've officially messed you up because when you see it, you'll be like, "Hold on, this isn't a bar scene." Hey, up next, we're going to be talking with uh, Clay Scroggins about how to lead when you're not in charge. What do you do when you're still a leader, and how do you play the role of leader when you don't have the authority or the position to uh, to be the leader? There's still ways to do it. We'll be talking about it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Uh, as we're trying to get our, our next guest on the line to talk about um, how to lead when you lack authority, one of the things I did want to focus a little bit on, um, do a little coach's corner, 
on you know relationships and and life that's that's what i tend to focus a lot of my practice on a lot of what i spend every day working on um but i i also have found um that in the end we need to be growing you need to be growing i need to be growing do you sense in your life this is a rhetorical question you don't need to answer it out loud do you sense in your life that you are uh, making the change you need to make. Are you? Are there? Are there just some obvious things that you know you should be working on, but you're you're just not getting to them for whatever reason? And so I wanted to see if I couldn't uh, help spark you to to take a little inventory on yourself. Some of the things, by the way, that you need to change are are actually good things. They're 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 things you're doing. You maybe just need to do more of them. Um, there's a great quote, of course, by Henry David Thoreau, for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there is one striking at the root. And so uh, many times we're, we're distracted working on the wrong things, the leaves, um, instead of getting down to the deep-rooted issues that we all face, the deep-rooted changes that we need to make. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, there are four what, basically what I call introspective questions that will help you take your goals right down to the roots and then grow it from there. First thing you could be talking about is the fruit that you're going after. What is the one thing that if you did it consistently and you did it effectively would positively impact your life? What is that one thing that, you know, you just go go get that one thing done. Go get that one thing to happen. And if you would do that one thing consistently and do it effectively – it, it, you know it would impact your life. Write that down. That should be the fruit that we're after, right? Getting that one thing done. Uh, another question we could ask are what are you doing or not doing right now that keeps you from achieving the goal that you know is important to you? And so what do you do every day or what do you not do every day that keeps you from achieving your goal? So what we're trying to do there is not just uh, – the first question was about identifying our goal and making it definable. Next, we want to identify our distraction. What's getting in the way of us from living our goal, that one thing that we should do every day? What is the one thing that keeps distracting you from your goal? Another uh, question we could ask are what fears, assumptions, or triggers are you making that keep uh, feuding with – you know, this deeper problem. What's what else? What fears do you have that might be underlying the uh, and um, underlining and, and being a critical part of what's leading to your lack of success? So, for example, is there is there a reason if you say you want to lose weight, then we go through the process of going after the fruit. So what is the one thing that you know if you could do consistently and effectively would positively impact your life in regards to you losing the weight? Well, I mean, I guess it could be I, 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 need, to, I need to exercise more. Great. What are you doing or not doing that keeps you from achieving your exercise goal? Well, I'm not exercising A, but what am I doing is instead I'm – uh, doing more writing during the time that I should be re- or walking and exercising, or I'm um, I'm setting up meetings or appointments during the time that I've set up my time to exercise. Great. 
what are the deeper or um, less flattering or more personal, embarrassing reasons that you keep doing that? Why? What is it about? And by the way, um, I actually went through this once uh, as I was trying to figure out how to have a healthier diet. I said I wanted to lose weight. I wanted to be healthier. But I always found out that I was – I for some reason was always eating at McDonald's. And what I realized is that you know, I, I eat at McDonald's because – I it's the by the way the restaurant closest to my office. And so why would I always eat at McDonald's if I said I wanted to lose weight? And what I found out was it's well it's because I want to see more clients is what I would say. So I would pack my schedule really deep and I was seeing clients all of the time and because I had so many client meetings then I I wasn't able to get a healthy lunch is what I would tell myself. But what I really realized uh, deep, deep down is that there is, uh, you know, part of it is that I really don't like to make my lunch. I'm kind of lazy. I I don't want to do it. It's too much work to have to think this thing ahead. So instead, I don't. And I just get into the pattern. I get into the system of uh, of avoiding the real issue that's going on here, which was more about my laziness. And I found that by asking ourselves the question, what's the, what's kind of the embarrassing truth? What's the deeper, less flattering, personal, embarrassing reason that really keeps me from meeting my goal? The minute I get down to the more embarrassing one, now the non-embarrassing one is I like to serve people, so I like to have a lot of appointments. But the more embarrassing one is that I'm just lazy. I'm just lazy. And sometimes we don't allow ourselves to go find and deal with the embarrassing issue that's deeper down. And by not ever evaluating or actually taking on the real issue, we act, we never make our goals actually go anywhere. What triggers, what assumptions do we make that keep us from going? And what's the most important thing I need to do today to start dealing with that laziness thing, the deeper embarrassing issue. And if we would just do that, for heaven's sakes, what would happen? Holy cow, we might actually end up moving forward on the goal. So just basic questions to dig a little deeper into why we can't make something happen, why we can't make our goal happen. Uh, that's, that's why we're here, to give you the tools you need. We'll continue Straight ahead, we'll be talking about uh, what to do, how to lead when you lack authority. If you don't have the position, if you don't have the call, the job, the responsibility, can you still be the leader in the room? Absolutely. We'll tell you how up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Good leadership begins in one place. It's inside of you. If you can learn to lead ourselves, and uh, then we will have the knowledge and the confidence to lead others. And even if we don't have the title that is so often associated with the leadership, you still can be the leader. That's according to our next guest, Clay Scroggins, who's a pastor from Atlanta and author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. He joins us today to teach us how we can lead ourselves and become great leaders for others. Clay, thank you so much for being with us today. 
So so excited about it, uh, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. This is you bet. Thrill for me. Thanks. It's pretty cool. I think um, what you're doing because. Uh, you're you're coming at this from uh, you're a you're a pastor in Atlanta, but you you I mean because a lot of us are in religious settings and we're um, we go to church and we may not have like the lead role, the leadership role, and even at business or even in our families or at work or at school or whatever. How how do I mean, how do you, first of all, I guess, frame what a leader is? Because yeah. you, you continually say it's not about having the authority necessarily, because sometimes you don't, but you can still be the leader. Yeah, that, that, that's really the first step in all of this to me, is you've got to understand what leadership really is. And I think we all do. I think we all understand it uh, in a conscious way, but it is deep within us to believe that I would say to believe as this, but also to act as though leadership and authority are one and the same. Hmm. Because as kids, we just grow up believing that, you know, the teacher was in charge and so she's the leader. Our parents were in charge and they're the leader. The bus driver's in charge and he's the leader. The principal's in charge and she's the leader. The coach, it goes on and on. And so we grow up just believing, okay, well, the way you become a leader is to get in charge. You got oh, to be in charge of something. That's how you, that's how you lead something. But when you start, when you back out and go to answer your question, what, what is leadership? We all know that there are people that are in charge that are not leading. And there are people that are not in charge that are actually leading. So I think we all know consciously on an intellectual level, that leadership goes beyond authority, that it's something greater than authority. And so obviously the word that's most commonly used is influence, that leadership really is its influence. Yeah. And that's the subtitle of this book that I've written, How to Leave When You're Not in Charge. The subtitle is Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. Oh, yeah. And the, the great news about that, to me it's a very hopeful message because if you find yourself in a place today where you're not in charge, good news, it doesn't mean – you aren't a leader, and it doesn't mean that you can't lead, but you actually can lead from whatever position that you're in, that you don't have to wait to be in charge in order to lead. And, I mean, I guess, too, uh, and I can't remember where I've heard this definition, but l- leaders tend to have followers, right? So part of this <laughs> yeah, is pe- yeah, people, leader, if, sure. if no one's following you, um, you may not be doing you may not be doing it right. Yeah. You may not be impacting. Yeah. You might have the corner office. You might you might have the parking spot, but if no one's following you, yeah, I would definitely question whether or not you're leading. Yeah. What What do you notice holds us back from? I mean, it sounds like one thing that could hold us back are just how we view our role as a leader. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else holds us back from from be, taking the role of leader? Yeah. One of the what I do in the book basically is I say, hey, so I, I try to set up this this idea that leadership really goes beyond authority, that it really is influence. And so uh, I try to build the case for influence-based leadership and not authority-based leadership, which I'm certainly not the first one to do that. But it was just me telling my own story of what I've experienced. And, and then really the, the, it begs the question, well, what am I doing to cultivate influence? Because if it really is all about influence, then am I growing my influence or am I losing my influence? Am I, is my influence eroding? And everyone can answer that question. Everyone can uh, have that conversation. And the book is really about these four behaviors that I'm trying to do in my own life to try to grow my influence. And so to your question of what holds us back, I would say 
one of the things that holds us back is exactly what you said, that we, we have failed to understand that leadership really is all that influence. So we've never really intentionally put a plan in place to grow our influence. But then the second thing that holds us back, I would say, is there is a negativity that comes when you're not in charge that is just highly dangerous because one of the challenges is we're constantly handed decisions that we didn't make. Hmm. And that's really difficult to steward that well because there, there's a statement that Patrick Lencioni makes in his book, The Advantage. He says, hey, when, when you give people the opportunity to weigh in, they're more likely to buy in. You think about that. So that's, true. that's such a true statement that when you yeah. give people the opportunity to weigh in, of course, they're going to be more likely to buy in. That's really the way our government works. Our government – we allow people to vote. That's their, that's their weigh-in. And then because of that, we have a buy-in. You know, we, we were frustrated with England because they were taxing us without giving us representation. They were asking us to buy in, and we weren't allowed to weigh in. So, so we created this system that we have. Now, the, the danger, though, I would say, is when you're not in charge, what do you do when you're handed decisions that you didn't get to weigh in on? Yeah. I would imagine – Matt, even in your job, there are things that someone else handed you, decisions that the station manager or that your boss has made that you didn't get to speak into, yet you've got to somehow find, find it within yourself to buy into decisions you didn't get to weigh in on. No, absolutely. And that really, to me, is one of the most challenging things about not being in charge. Well, and especially as corporations are huge and, and these institutions get bigger and bigger, uh, I mean, there is a reason why maybe seven, I think the numbers Gallup poll shows 70% of people are disengaged in their workplace. Yep. And it, yep. it probably is simply because they are never really asked to weigh in. And even when they are asked to weigh in, their weighing in has very little weight. That's right. That's right. They feel like it, ha- it doesn't actually have any sway. Yeah. So the question for me that I try to answer in this book is, you know, that, you know, you can, you can be frustrated by that and you can go, okay, well, bosses need to do a better job of allowing people to weigh in. And, and that is true. I think as a boss, I need to think through what am I doing to allow people to weigh in. But second, I, I think what's maybe what the, the intent of the book was to say, hey, for those of us that aren't in charge, instead of just becoming a victim and going, well, I'm just frustrated and my boss doesn't do this and my boss doesn't do that, what can I actually do to cultivate, to cultivate influence? And one of the things that you can do is you can find ways to buy in even when you didn't get the chance to weigh in. Mm-hmm. And all of us have done that in our life. And all of us, we, we know we can. The question is, will we be willing to do that? Because cultivating influence really does require us to be excited about what we're working on today. Yeah. You know, that's what my boss, my boss wants me excited about what's going on, what I'm doing today. And and the same thing with the people that work for me. I want people that work for me to be really excited about what they're working on. I don't want them sitting around going, well, well, you didn't ask and you didn't ask my opinion. You know, I want them to go, Hey, I'm going to choose to believe that the decision that was made was the best decision and I'm going to get all in on it. And so I got to figure out how can I do that? How can I how can I buy in to decisions that I didn't get to weigh in on? I think I think that is what ultimately will cultivate more influence for any one of us. And we it it does seem too like we um we're going to influence one way or another. It's it, That's it's really exactly right. right. It's kind of about how we're going to do it. And so if you're handed something you don't have control over, you could just sit back and complain about it, and that will influence everyone one way. But it will also make everyone realize, oh, you're not the leader. 
That's right. That's right. And, and so you, you actually least, you won't grow more authority, moral authority. Right. You won't grow. You won't grow much, but you know, frustration. That's exactly right. So the 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 next obstacle I would say is, you know, the the, the person that says, okay, well, so is the answer just to be excited about everything and just to walk around with my head in the clouds going, this is awesome. Have you, Matt, do you have little kids? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I have six kids. Have yep. you seen the Lego movie? Yeah. You know that song in the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome? Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. I feel like sometimes when I'm giving this talk to people, I can see it in their eyes. I can see it <laughs> in their face. They're frustrated going, are you telling me that you want me to just walk around going, everything is awesome all the time? And of course, the answer is absolutely not, because that doesn't breed influence alone. You can't just walk around going, okay, well, I'm just going to buy in, even though I didn't get the way in, and everything is awesome, and this is so great, and best ever, and that was amazing. No, we still have to learn how to, the behavior that I try to uh, encourage myself to do and encourage others is to think critically. We still have to have the ability to think critically. We've got to have the ability to make something better to bring value to whatever we're working on today that i can't be a uh i can't be a rainbow puking unicorn (laughs) that is just walking around going everything is awesome all the time now i do get to choose the attitude i bring and i need to bring a posture of positivity but i also need to bring the skill of critical thinking my boss wants me bringing value to what i'm working on my boss wants me thinking through how can I make better what it is that's in front of me today. And that's a huge, uh, that's a really difficult thing to do, but it is so important if you want to become a person that is invited to the table, that has, in, that has more influence, that has influence that goes beyond your authority. Yeah, because then, then you're, you're becoming additive to the conversation. You're, that's right. You're critical thinking, it, and you distinguish between being critical and having critical thinking, the critical thinking is taking it to the next level, making That's right. sure it's not a complaint. It's actually an innovation. You're innovating. Yeah, the, the line between thinking critically and being critical is razor thin. Hmm. And most people that have the gift of – most people that are wired analytically – most people that are not – they're, they're just naturally good at critical thinking. And, and it's amazing how I really find that people fall in one or two camps. They're either naturally prone to positivity, and they're just – it's easier for them to choose a good attitude. It's easier than, for them to bring enthusiasm to work, or they are gifted at thinking critically. They just naturally see problems. They naturally see ways that things can get better – and if you're wired that way, if you find that you have that temperament or that personality, it is so easy and dangerous to gravitate toward being critical or being cynical or becoming negative because that's the way you're wired. And especially when you're not in charge, because when you're not in charge, it's very easy to feel like a victim because so many decisions are handed to you. So many people are constantly giving you orders, making decisions for you. And so you can easily become the victim. And when, when you're in the victim, when you take a victim mindset, and then you also bring that gift of being analytical or thinking critically, when you combine those two together, it just it's very easy to become negative or cynical. And that's dangerous because you will not cultivate influence if you're someone who's highly critical. I mean, those are the kinds of people that it doesn't matter if they have the best idea. We just don't want to be around them. Right. And they, they certainly don't have any influence with us. It's, it's um, uh, Blaine Lee talked about uh, in his book, The Power Principle, talked about the fact that the real power comes from the follower. 
And I mean, That's you right. you could again, you can be given the position, but you have to. People have to trust your heart and your mind, and and be willing to follow you in the end. So. Um, how, so I guess that's how we distinguish too. some authority, I guess, is given, but in the end, the, the most important authority is earned. I would say so. And, you know, the, you know, kind of the ultimate twist of this whole book, which I didn't necessarily go into the project with this in mind, but the more I started writing about this topic, Matt, the more I realized, oh, wow, you know, the, the amazing thing about this is that even, let's say you apply all of these principles of leadership and what's going to happen. Well, you're probably going to, as you have already said, you're going to get more authority. You're going to be given more authority. You will be the quickest to be asked to do more. And, and, and so you'll, in a sense, you'll become in charge. Yeah. But the, the amazing thing about this is that hopefully you will have learned how to lead through influence. And even though you have authority, you will not have to use that authority to be able to get people to do what you think they need to do. You can do it through influence because the greatest leaders, the best leaders, the leaders that we want to follow, they don't leverage their authority. They leverage influence even when they're in charge. And so this is such an important thing for anybody listening today who's not in charge and you're hoping one day to be in charge is that what you're doing today is so important because you're not wasting time. You're not forgotten. This isn't meaningless, but this is so important what you're doing today to cultivate influence when you're not in charge so that one day when you get to be in charge, you will have that kind of influence to be able to lead with and to be able to leverage with others because that's the way the greatest leaders lead anyway, even when they're in charge. Absolutely. We're speaking with Clay Scroggins, uh, who's the author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. Clay is a pastor from Atlanta, from the North Point Community Church, and uh, he works uh, under Andy Stanley, who's the founder of the North Point Community Church. And and really, I think what you're teaching us here, Clay, is— it's um it really needs to be taught i think to our kids our kids need to understand uh and blow up some of these myths about leadership any yeah. any ideas any suggestions for how we can teach our kids uh to be better leaders from the get go yeah i love that you're saying that matt um how how old are your kids i have a 25 year old down to a 12 year old wow so you're you're in the thick of it oh, yeah. um, we've got we just had our fifth kid a couple of months ago is we have uh, nine, seven, five, three, and then we got a little baby. So, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, certainly, I didn't write this book with family in mind, but just like you, it's hard to think about life and not think about family. Right. And the, the more I've done this talk in front of audiences, you know, I, I, almost every time I'll have someone do very similar to what you just do and say, you know what? This actually works as a parent. And this is actually important for me to talk to my kids about as well, because as a parent, you know, it's very easy to leverage authority. It's very easy to say, well, I am the dad and you're going to do what I tell you to do because I said that you're going to do it, which, you know, certainly if your kid's playing in the middle of the street and there's a car coming, uh, that's appropriate. You need right. to do that, you know. But, but as, as I'm sure you know, when you, get, when you have kids at the age that your kids are, there comes a point where your voice as if, if your voice is only a voice of authority, you will not have the same sway with your kids that you want, that you want to have influence with your kids and it's got to go beyond your position. And so I think the question of what can I do to cultivate influence with my kids 
I, that's, I know you asked from a child standpoint, but I would say from a parent standpoint, that's such an important question because if I'm having to, if I'm having, you know, when, when your kids are little, when they're at the age that all of my kids are, you know, obedience is really something that they've got to learn because it's authority. Right. But when you get into the teenage years, you want them to learn obedience out of trust built really on influence because this person loves me and they care for me and they want what's good for me. But that requires the parent to have cultivated that kind of influence. Absolutely. And as a kid, I think certainly, you know, every single day our kids are going into classrooms or going into peer groups or they're on teams where they don't have all of the authority, but they've got to learn just because I'm not the teacher, just because I'm not the coach, just because I'm not in charge doesn't mean that I don't have sway, that I can't have sway, that I, that doesn't mean that I don't have an opportunity today to influence the people around me. So I think there's absolutely application for parents and kids. Well, and also I guess part of leadership is knowing when to follow and whom to follow. I mean, and so, uh, cause some of this is just not, not everybody deserves to be followed. Um, <laughs> I, I would agree. And certainly just because someone has authority doesn't mean that they deserve to be followed. Now, you know, obviously I believe that authority really matters. Yeah. I believe authority, uh, goes beyond just our government institutions, that there's, there's more to authority than just what we see or who we've elected. But, I still think, um, yeah, especially when it's a uh, when it comes to our kids and teaching them how to make decisions based on values and not just based on uh, the influence of others. Because, like you said, not all influences are great influences. No, right. Um, as we wrap up, Clay, uh, what would you say is the one thing if there's if there's one thing we should all focus on when we're in a position and we have a leader that's in charge and leading us. Um, what's the one thing we could do that would just immediately increase our ability to to be a good follower, but also be positioning ourselves to become a leader? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. I I would say, you know, the the most important thing any one of us could do today is to take charge of my greatest area of responsibility, which ultimately is me that I don't have to be in charge to take charge. I can take charge of what is maybe the most important thing is certainly what I'm most responsible to lead today. And that's me. And so for those of you that are listening, that maybe, maybe you have a boss that is not the best. Maybe you have a boss that you don't like. Maybe you have a boss that you feel like isn't doing a great job or you feel like isn't pouring into you. That doesn't mean that you can't be well led today that I believe that the greatest sense of responsibility any one of us has is to lead ourselves well. And you can take the ownership of leading yourself well. And the great news about that is you will assure that you are always well-led if you lead yourself well. And so the first thing I would do is to say, hey, take charge. Take charge of leading you really, really well. You know, even if you feel like you have a bad boss, make it clear, put a stake in the ground and say, hey, I'm going to be well-led. And I would say the easiest way to lead yourself well, maybe the most important thing in regard to leading yourself well, is knowing exactly where you are. Most people know where they want to be. Most people don't know exactly where they are. And you can't get to where you want to be until you know exactly where you are right now. Yeah. And so the, the better you can understand what you're good at, what you're not good at, what your blind spots are, 
the better you'll be able to lead yourself today. Good stuff. Clay, thank you so much. Great insight. Uh, Clay Scroggins, again, um, the author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. He's also uh, the lead pastor of North Point Community Church and is working there under Andy Stanley, who's the founder of North Point Community Church. Great, uh, great lessons learned, by the way, in the pews and also um, with the people, right? Uh, being a leader is not just a position anymore. It's it's much more than that. And we've all got to learn to lead and follow, I think, effectively, uh, no matter what the calling, no matter what the responsibility. We'll continue the journey. Next up, we'll be talking about how to handle sensitive disagreements. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, Kim joined us uh, to talk about how best to handle disagreements that become emotional. We began the interview by uh, me asking her that when we are arguing in the heat of the moment, how do we get through it? Yeah, we've got to have some tools for right when you're in this argument and you're both starting to state your case and, and basically tell your friend or your family yeah. member they're wrong. Without invalidating them. Yeah, with still showing that you value them as a person. So one of the things I want you to watch for while you're listening to their point of view, and you better be willing to listen to their point of view. Number one, you if you value a person, you've got to give them a place to share who they are, hmm. what they feel, what they think, and really listen to them. While you're listening, one of the things that will really help if if you will watch for the good intentions and the good character that's behind this person's opinion. For for example, those who are against gay marriage, m- many, you know, have strong religious beliefs and and in their mind this is this is about obedience to what God has told them to do. Right. And the, and there's beautiful character that's in right. that. That they they want to be that kind of person and I was telling the person who wrote this question to me that your spouse who supports gay marriage they are the most loving soul, and they want to just be able to be good just and fair love and loving person. to everyone. Yeah. Isn't that a beautiful thing about right. their character? It really is. It's coming from a good place. Yeah, but we do have a, a negative bias where we tend to look for what's wrong in anybody else's argument before we look for yeah. what's right or good about it. And if you look for the good, it is always there. Yeah. You can see good character and good intentions, at least, behind yeah. this person's viewpoint. So I think you need to look for that. Instead of tearing it down, find where 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 is their goodness and and shore that up and even shore it up with them. Yeah. Oh, make sure. I can sure see you really you, love people. And you know, and you I want, really love this about you that you're you're this faithful way. to your belief system, and you believe God thinks it's wrong. And I appreciate that you're strong that way. So, in doing that, can you see you're really valuing their their character, who mm-hmm. they are? You're you're yeah. valuing them, even though you can't agree with their. And opinion. that'll keep them in the conversation. I'm assuming. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other thing uh, that's just a rule for me, especially when it comes to your spouse, remember that being nice is more important than being right, Mm -hmm. especially in your marriage. And a lot of us, because we've attached our value to our ideas, we really have a strong need to be right. In order to feel like we're okay and and validate ourselves, we need to crush the other people and prove that we're right and you're wrong. And if that's your mindset in your marriage... Is going to be trouble. Oh, it's going to get ugly. It is really- well, and, and I can totally agree and love 
and, and actually be converted to, I, you know what, I do need to love these people more that, I'm, that I have a difference with. And it does, me loving them doesn't mean I give up my position that God doesn't like it. I don't have to either or the decision, right? I can still I, – I might find right. I might find what you're saying is absolutely right and actually be living against it. Like I could know that I should love them and know that I don't. You know what I mean? I could oh, change right then and yeah. it changes me if I'll let it in. I think the biggest piece is that we need to be open. We need to all be teachable and yeah. open to different perspectives and seeing the world from a different angle. It would do nothing but serve us. Yeah. To be open to learn. I think that's what we think, though, is if we if this was going to be solved, we would think alike still. But in well, the end, you may not think alike. Yeah. And we Chances could still. are you're not going to. But I could still be changed. Absolutely. And I could still be more loving and still believe what I believe. And you could be loving and also see that this is a religious belief for you, not just. Well, you also need rude. to realize that the more you push your right and their wrong, the more they will dig in right. and insist to be validated on their opinion. Where if you will validate them and be open and not try so hard to push yeah. your opinion, they will actually be more open yeah. and you'll have more influence. That's powerful. Absolutely. And we, we just have to know that it's not always going to be, you know, the Brady Bunch group hug at the end. But I can still – I mean, it could still be positive and good. Absolutely. And yet we don't always agree. So, Matt, one of the many free things that I give away on my website, on my resources page, is instructions on how to have a mutually validating conversation with your spouse or anyone. And honestly, I think it's the most valuable thing on yeah. there. Everybody needs to know how to properly have a mutually validating conversation where both people leave feeling heard and understood, respected, and honored. And if yeah, oh you yeah, you just need to know how to do and it. Just to have like the guidelines. So they go to Clarity Point Coaching. Where and where is it on the site? It's on the resources page, and the buttons right there on the front page. Hit resources, and you'll and see down. how to have a mutually validating conversation. And the bottom line is that you're going to give the other person a chance to share and talk about how they feel first. Mm -hmm. And you're going to listen and validate, honor and respect their opinion. Don't disagree. Yeah. Honestly, don't even agree. Just honor Just their right to have their opinion. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to ask if they would be open to letting you share some of your opinion. And if this is, is someone who in the past – overruns you, interrupts, won't listen, you may have to specifically yeah. ask, would you be willing to shut up for like yeah. five minutes and let me really explain why I feel the way I feel? Would you be willing to give that to me? And they have to agree. And then make sure when you do speak your opinion that you use I yeah, statements, you keep it safe for not them. Yeah, you yeah. statements. You do You're this. You're so messed you, up. Right. <laughs> You're wrong. It's cool. Yeah. Talk about what you've experienced, how you see the world, and how things make you feel. And if and you're sincere, and if you're sincere and make it safe, I always think that I have to. It's like I call it stethoscoping. They, if they're listening to my heart, I need to make it safe for them to keep listening. If I grab the stethoscope and yell in it. You'll never listen to me again. So while you've oh, got this I sensitive like little instrument listening to my heart, I'm going to make it safe. I'm going to talk safe. I'm going to use I statements. I'm going to make sure you can keep listening. I might slow down my pace. I might give you a chance to show me you're getting what I'm saying. Slow it down. Be safe. It's hard, though. It's a hard topic. It is. But, but it's valuable, it. and especially we once do we've done this. it. We yeah. can talk about anything and That's still right. respect and honor the no. other person. That was Kim Giles, again, from Clarity Point Coaching, and uh, all of us. We, we can all improve our ability to 
to be a little bit more sensitive as we disagree and interact with others and really uh, learn to communicate more effectively what we do mean, what we do feel. That's what makes it, you know, healthy life, healthy relationships. We'll continue uh, doing what we can to, to educate all of us on how to be the best we can be. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. Uh, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier life. Today we'll be talking about the mind of a leader. We'll have a guest come on and... Um, just give us some insight into leadership uh, that maybe a little compassion goes farther than uh, just, I don't know, sometimes anything else you can do as a leader. Uh, interesting insights there. Plus, of course, we'll visit with our good friends from BYU Sports Nation. We'll do a little empty news to keep you up on some of the headlines you might not always hear about. And then our hero of the day, of course, we will be getting to that. So much to cover, including, um, uh, you know, just the latest and greatest headlines. Uh, you won't believe it, but apparently President Trump, uh, now people are wondering, they're actually asking all the legislative leaders, what do you think? Do you think you're going to support President Trump in his reelection bid? And many of them are saying, mm, I'm going to wait. Know. I'm going to wait to decide that. I've got a lot of. I'm not sure I'm going to be elected first, so yeah. let's worry about my midterm. Hmm. Yeah. Not Should a, they have a robust endorsement of the uh, president at this point? Well, I mean, it depends, I guess, who you are yeah. and depends who your electorate are because some of them have no choice but to love the man. Hmm. Seems like. Yeah. Right? Um uh, Nikki Haley doesn't necessarily feel love at this moment. She's been dissed by him and, and really took a really strong stand. She's, fa- in fact, one of the first to really take a stand against the president when he played some media games with her. Yeah, they, they said that she got confused when it came to Russian sanctions. She said Sunday they were going to happen. Monday they came out and said not so fast. Yeah. And they said she might have been confused. And she says... Uh, what did she say? With all due respect, yeah. I don't get confused. You're like, whoa. <laughs> That's awesome. She's tough cookie. Um, all right. Let's get to the other headlines, Terry. What other things should we be focused on today? Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt isn't the most popular guy in Washington. Lawmakers made their opinions on the scandal-ridden EPA chief very clear in resolutions introduced Wednesday. 39 members of the Senate called for Pruitt's resignation, as did more than 130 members of the House. Uh, The companion resolutions signed entirely by Democrats would force Pruitt to step down or force President Trump to appoint a new administrator. No cabinet member has ever had so many senators officially push for their resignation, making Pruitt's recent blunders historically controversial. Wow. That's got to be nerve-wracking. Has to do with uh, spending on... What that apartment it was what fifty bucks every time he used it, which is but it's yeah. more the issue that he was using an energy. It was the apartment was owned by an energy lobbyist, right? So it's like you make a connection, and then they found that that energy lobbyist just had a pipeline approved. So, <laughs> huh? That's interesting. And then that's there's some. Weird. Uh, he like beefed up his personal vehicle. Oh yeah, that he drove as the EPA chief, and they put in bulletproof seat covers. 
Sure. Well, that makes sense. Right. So, and then he put a, uh, a soundproof, uh, surveillance-proof phone booth in his office for like forty-three thousand dollars. But the EPA building has one of these rooms in the building. He just wanted it in his office, so they had to build a second one for him. Wow. Yeah. But, I mean, is the... Things a- like that. It just doesn't seem like the EPA is that secretive of... I mean, I get those things if you're in the CIA. Right. But you're the EPA director. Yeah. Just, you know, things like that that are like, why, do we, why, are, why are you spending all this money? Yeah. Then there's travel and everything else that he spent a lot of money on, and people are just looking at it like you're, you're spending quite a bit more money than any other previous EPA chief. Yeah. What do you need all these things for? And there's no real solid reason. So he's, was, he's under review. Okay. I thought maybe this is all a way to drain the swamp. He's just trying to drain the swamp. No, many people think he's making it swampy. He is the swamp. He is the swamp. Okay. Representative Adam Schiff of a Democrat of California Wednesday introduced an Abuse of Pardon Prevention Act, which is meant to prevent the president or any other from abusing the pardon power for their own benefit or to obstruct justice. The legislation would require that if the president pardons someone in conjunction with an investigation in which the president or one of his family members is a target, subject, or witness the evidence against the a recipient of the pardon would be provided by the Department of Justice to Congress. This comes after Senator uh, Mitch McConnell announced Tuesday that a bill meant to shield special counsel Robert Mueller would not be brought to the floor. Huh. And many people felt that was a green light for the president just to go ahead and get rid of Robert Mueller. Right. And, Which, but and, Mitch McConnell's like, if I put document in front of him to protect Mueller, Trump's not going to sign it, so why go through the effort of doing it? Isn't it interesting that we keep, what, has it been three months of talking about uh, firing Mueller? And interestingly, he hasn't been fired. Right. I asked the president yesterday. He goes, he's still there. He's still there. And and it almost just seems like we're talking more about firing Mueller than the investigation itself. Well, Mueller's not telling anyone what's happening, so it's hard to talk about it. There's other news around these investigations it's not as spicy as the president firing a guy yeah but because then we can go back to nixon and we yeah. can bring up nixon again i guess there's always the kardashians <laughs> really yeah something to talk about. all right california governor jerry brown has reached an agreement to send national guard troops to help the mexican border after finding himself uh, the repeat target of donald trump's anger for his reluctance to get involved in immigration related work around 400 of the state's national guard troops will be deployed to focus on fighting transnational gangs as well as drugs and gun smugglers the guard will not handle custody duty for people accused of immigration violations build border barriers or have anything to do with immigration enforcement so now that's settled yeah National Guard to the border. Okay. <laughs> now we can relax. Rest easy. Finally, doctors say the probability of uh, the patient, this guy, surviving should have been near zero. It is thought that the 50-year-old survived because of a drop in his body temperature protected his brain and other organs. The man has defied odds of survival after his heart stopped beating for 18 hours. What? Whoa. The, the 53-year-old man suffered a heart attack while out walking, but because his body was so cold when paramedics got to him, doctors were able to still they were able to save him. The patient who has not been named is now recovering in hospital and is not expected to suffer any brain damage. The London Times reports the French man had a heart attack while walking back from his brother's house on March 12th. Relatives out searching found the missing man unconscious by a river and called paramedics who discovered he was suffering with hypothermia. 
They started to resuscitate him at the scene with doctors taking over once they got him to hospital. Medics carried on with the heart massage for more than four hours before placing him on a heart-lung machine. This kept him alive until his body temperature rose enough for them to make another attempt to get his heart going. A hospital spokesperson said the patient's survival was because of the fall in his body temperature. They had protected his brain and other organs. And emergency services realizing this were able to... Uh, make quick decisions to get him to a place that by the time his body temperature rose enough, they could resuscitate him. Incredible. Or they hope to, because obviously 18 hours is a long time to not have a heartbeat. How long were you dead? 18 hours. That is incredible. Yeah. Four hours of cardiac massage? That's Uh, literally someone standing by the bedside, like, you know, palpitating your heart for you, like, manually. That's insane. I hate massages. Does that count as deep tissue? Yeah, that's, that is a deep tissue massage right there. Can you imagine that? I mean, you've got to feel lucky or blessed, right? Oh, yeah. And thank heavens it was he would never have survived if it hadn't been cold. So now, now all these medical journals are bothering you all the time. Hey, we'd like oh. to publish your story. It's okay. There have been in five journals already. No, no, we'll yeah. just do it again. Well, I wonder which, what's more damaging, the heart attack mm. Or the fact that you were dead for 18 hours, which is harder to recover from. Right. Mm-hmm. Probably the heart massage. Oof. I hate having people's hands in my chest cavity. <laughs> I don't know. It just gives me the chills. Yeah. Unless their hands are really warm and I'm really cold. <laughs> well, you were. Hypothermia, right? <laughs> warm hands, cold heart. Oh, those hands are The other so way around. <laughs> cold hands, warm heart. That's what it is. That's it. That's it. That's exactly. Oh, how wild is that? What a blessing for that man. Well, fun. Uh, Straight ahead, we're going to be talking about the mind of the uh, leader, the power of bringing some compassion back to life. Can compassion actually, uh, you know, healthy, create a healthy resolution for a corrupt leader? We'll talk about it up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When some people think of leaders and leadership, sometimes the phrase they talk the talk, but they but can they walk the walk comes to mind with high expectations. Leaders are put into a different class because of their status. And when stress mounts and deadlines hit, they are pushed to the brink. In her newly co-authored book, uh, Jacqueline Carter, our next guest, takes us inside the mind of a leader and shows us what the most important quality uh, of leadership might actually be. Jacqueline, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Matt. It's great to be here. You bet. Is um, I mean, we, we, we talk of leadership a lot. And so, uh, you know, what drove you and your team uh, – uh, to write the book, The Mind of the Leader, um, what, what, was the, what was the real tipping point for you? Well, I think that one of the things, and maybe hopefully listeners can appreciate this, but leadership today, it's a pretty tough job. It's probably always been a tough job, but as you mentioned in the introduction, so many leaders today are feeling a tremendous amount of pressure with globalization, with increasing competition coming from all different places, uh, technology. I mean, I could go on and on in terms of the challenges that leaders are facing today, and of course, all of us are facing. But as leaders trying to manage and lead within that complexity, 
we've just really seen, we saw over the last really two to three, five years, that leaders were, that we were working with were increasingly feeling overwhelmed and pressured and, and not necessarily being as effective. And the other side of it is we wanted to really look, so we asked, we looked at it from the leader's perspective, and we also started to look at what's, you know, the employees' perceptions of leaders. And what we know is from the Gallup, recent Gallup poll studies, that only 13% of the global workforce is engaged, 24% actively disengaged. We found a a study that showed that 65% of employees would forego a pay raise to see their leader fired. Wow. Not really? a good statistic. Yeah. And then and then there was another study that showed that um, 77% of leaders, there was a was research done by McKinsey t- of 2,500 2, leaders, 70-70% of leaders thought they were doing a great job engaging their people, 82% of their people disagreed. Oh, man. <laughs> so, you know, just, and that was really, you know, so we looked at this and we went, wow, there's a real challenge out there in terms of not only our experience in working with leaders, but also in the perceptions of people of how much they trust their leaders, how engaged they are. So that was really the background with what we wanted to set out to explore further. How how can leaders be so um, not self-aware? How, how can there be such a disconnect in what's actually being delivered versus what they think is being delivered? Well, I think that, that first of all, um, we did interview, and we, we interviewed over 250 C-suite executives, and we assessed over 35,000 leaders, and we, we had surveyed data from thousands of leaders. We, we saw many great leaders who are very self-aware yeah. and are doing a great job. So just to, to not paint a completely bleak picture, but I think that many leaders, they, I'll give you an example, maybe if it just to give you yeah. a scenario. So a leader walks into a room and they've got, you know, 15 other deliverables that they're supposed to do. Their inbox is piling up. They've got to get through this meeting because they just have to, you know, still catch up from the last meeting and they've got another meeting right after this. They walk into that meeting and they know that there's issues with the team. And they have to make that decision. And again, see if you can relate to this. Do they say, hey, it seems like, you know, there's issues here or do they just plow through the agenda? And many leaders, they're just busy. They yeah, make the yeah. call. I mean, and it's not that they're, they're not in any way uncaring or unkind or maybe not even, you know, not self-aware. They don't have time. And they just make the decision, I just got to push this forward. I got a deliverable. I've got pressure to be able to make the quarterly results. And I think that if you, if you do that once, that's maybe okay. But I think what we're seeing is that the pressure that leaders are experiencing, that's happening all the time. And it's not, I think, the way they want to show up, but it, it's just the, the, the environment is creating the conditions that aren't enabling them to be the best leader that they want to be, or at least they don't think they can be. And oh, it's absolutely. It's a negative impact on their employees. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then, and then they don't get the results, um, but they, you know, I, I guess what's weird, too, is sometimes it's not an immediate cause and effect either, right? So sometimes you, you might not... You might not notice the bad leadership or the inability to get stuff done for a few years. Right. And then that delay actually makes you seem like you're doing really well at one point. I don't know. It's it's a very complicated role. It is a very complicated role. And, and what's interesting, and I think this is why we really see this as a crisis, is that it used to be that you might not see it for two or three years, but what we're seeing with the next generation of workers is they're not waiting that long. If yeah. they're talented, 
you know, with the gig economy, with so many opportunities, I mean, I can work for a global organization from the comfort of my living room. You know, if they're not engaged, if they're not feeling like they're purpose, you know, they have purpose in their work, and if they don't enjoy working with their leader, they'll quit. So I think it's, and that's, I think, also another pressure factor that um, it's a lot, again, it's a, it's, it's a tough role today for leaders. For oh, sure. yeah. And, and um, part of what your book addresses is the mind. You, you really yes. get in deeply into the mind. Talk about the impact the mind has on leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that first of all, I think that a lot of leadership development programs have focused on really important things like strategy and vision and mission. And what they've missed is really the the mind aspect, which is really understanding, and it's even beyond just basic self-awareness, but understanding how you think and how you manage your thoughts and really understanding your values and how they translate into how you show up every day. And so what we really wanted to look at was really bring the mind to the forefront of leadership development and look at it not only from a a very much a practical perspective, like what's the mindset that you want to show up in your day-to-day leadership, but there's a lot of amazing science now, researchers looking at how our, how our mind actually works, have really been able to come up with some really interesting insights, which I think are critical for every leader to understand in terms of what leadership does to your mind and what you need to do to make sure you don't let it run you, that you are actually make sure that you are managing and leading your own mind to, to be the best leader you can be. What does leadership do to our mind? Is it, I mean, we think that power, you know, corrupts us. Is, is that true? Yeah, that was one of the key things that we found was that as you start to rise up the ranks in leadership, it becomes natural for you to start to think, and your ego in particular, for your ego to start to grow and you to start to think, I must be pretty important. All these people are telling me how great I am, and I keep on you know, getting the, the corner office and the bigger pay raise and whatever. And that's dangerous because a big ego in leadership is not a good thing. If it's all about you, then you're not going to be able to make the best decisions for the team. People aren't going to feel engaged. If you have a a big ego, you can be easily manipulated. People can say, oh, Matt, you know, this will make you look good, and you might do it because it's your ego. You also, you know, you, you get narrow in your vision. You look for things that are going to confirm what your ego wants to see and hear. And, of course, ultimately, it can corrupt your behavior. What we saw, the research shows that, that the more senior you are in an organization, the more likely you are to be rude, to be late for meetings, to not clean up after yourself, <laughs> really? all the way to unethical behavior. So it's really important for leaders to understand their mind and what leadership uh, can do, and not always, but can negatively impact in terms of your, um, your mind. And there's other aspects of the science around the mind as well for leaders, which are important too. Boy, I mean, that, that is pretty interesting because um, that's no wonder you might start losing power if all of a sudden everything becomes more egoic to you or you might exactly. – you start believing your own press. You start, uh, you know, lo- losing your moorings. Then, then you just are kind of swayed by whoever schmoozes the best. Well, exactly. And then the other aspect is that leadership can and not necessarily – um, but it can also, and we did interview a number of leaders that said that, you know, as they rose up in the ranks and had to make tougher decisions, they found that they were 
they were less caring towards other people, that they started to be a little bit more distant. And they noticed it not only with their employees, but they also noticed it with their families. And one leader that we spoke with, he was really sad about it, um, but he was also very matter-of-fact. He just noticed that he just had less compassion. So it's really, again, really get important for us to understand understand our mind. Mm. And if we can, I mean, I guess if we can understand it, the idea would be we could adjust to it. Uh, what What is the antidote then to power and, and uh, you know, getting that egoic, you know, leadership mentality? What, how do we fix it? How do we fight against it? Well, the amazing thing is, and I think that's the good news, is that our minds can be trained. And we know that our mind is plastic. So from researchers that are studying neuroplasticity, which is basically our brain's ability to be able to change based on how we use it, we know that our work environments today can cause us to be very distracted. We know we can train our mind to be more focused and more present. We know that we have, can have these egoistic tendencies. Again, we can train our mind to be more selfless, more other-focused. And similarly, we can train our mind to be able to, to overcome what I talked about earlier but, and bring more compassion and caring and kindness into our everyday work life. So there's, there's a lot of hope in this. That's great. It really is. Um, how, how do you see um, your, the, the readers receiving this information? Um, I mean, I know you've had an article in Harvard Business Review. Uh, how, what's the feedback you're getting from leaders? Extremely positive. I think it's, um, we're, we're really, we're, well, first of all, we've been so inspired by the leaders in the many organizations. And, and these are, you know, leaders from organizations like Microsoft and Cisco and Accenture, Marriott. Uh, so we were very inspired, first of all, by the leaders that we met with that already had figured out before we wrote the book and inspired us in terms of their stories about how they recognize the importance of bringing mindfulness and and selflessness and compassion into their day-to-day leadership and then being able to now share the stories and it backed up by so much research and and of course our own field work it has been extremely well received and uh, yeah we're, we're we've been really 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 inspired by the receptivity that we've got so far uh, again we're speaking with Jacqueline Carter who is the co-author of uh the, of the book um I lost the name of it Jacqueline the mind of the, the leader. mind of the leader. I was like the inside mind of the leader. I'm like that doesn't make sense. The mind of the leader is it? Um, as I look at it, would it matter to the le- if the leader or what the leader's leading is, or does power tend to just you know work our ego anyway? But if I was the if I was a leader of a of a church congregation, would that be different for me than if I was leading a corporation or if I was a leader of a nonprofit organization or a charity? Does it matter what you lead and the impact chair or the impact that power has on us? I would say that we first of all, we did not specifically research that question, so I can't back that up with data. But I can say that what we found is that regardless of what group we're leading, if we are in a position of authority and power, we can have that tendency for our ego to grow. And it really doesn't matter. And of course, mm. we've seen many examples of this, and, you know, in not-for-profits or in, yeah. in 
church organizations where, again, it, it and I even, you know, recognize it when I, I go around and I give talks and, you know, I'm standing up in front of a room full of 200 people that are all looking to me. And one of the things that I have to continually remind myself is, okay, ego, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, you're sharing things, people are engaged and inspired. But ultimately, I, I also have to remember to keep and train myself to keep my ego in check because it's just a natural thing for your ego to grow regardless of the group that you're leading. Right. Is, um, and I guess, do you sense that this is a bigger problem today than normal, or do you sense that this is just kind of an age-old issue? Well, it certainly is an age-old issue. I think that what's happened today is that when you combine it with the busyness, as I mentioned earlier, the complexity of today's work environments, and I think the, you know, we're also seeing, you know, I, I think that within a lot of organizations and certainly within society, we are seeing less social cohesion. Um, but, you know, when you have employees that are working around the globe and you don't, you know, hang out in the, in the cafeteria or around the, the coffee pot, it is more difficult for us to be able to feel that sense of connection and engagement. So I just think that not only within society we're seeing challenges in terms of social cohesion and trust, but we're really seeing that within organizations. So I think it's a, it's both an age-old problem and also very much a modern-day challenge. Yeah. Do you um, you talked about the neuroplasticity of the brain, and one of your one of your solutions that um, would be pr- uh, probably a, I know it's a big talking point in the book. Um, but this idea of compassion, what are some things we can do to train uh, our leaders to be more compassionate? What are some ways I can get even myself or those that I'm that I can influence um, all of us focused a little bit more on being a compassionate leader or a compassionate member of society? Well, I think first of all is to make sure that we value it. And one of the things that we found really interesting was in talking to so many leaders, we asked them, you know, what does compassion mean for you and how important is it in business? Is it just something that it's like motherhood and apple pie that you kind of fluff off and say, yeah, that's really nice, but it's, you know, that's just for, you know, if you want to be nice. And uh, what we really saw, and I think that this was also very inspiring for us, is that there's tons of research that backs up how strategic it is to bring compassion into an organization. It enhances engagement. It makes people feel more valued. Um, it, ha- it helps retention. Um, people will work harder, work longer, which may or may not be a good thing for their own work-life balance, but if they feel more connected. And compassion is really the the... The, the the mechanism for enabling people to to feel that true connection with their with their organization and with their leader, so it really is a very strategic thing. I think in answer to your question, one of the things that's really important is to combine it with wisdom. So what we really saw was that if I'm just all about you know I just want I just want to be kind, but I'm not applying a really um, strategic focus on what that actually means to be able to ensure my organization and my people are successful, I may or may not be able to really do the best for for my people. And I'll give you an example of that. You know, let's say you and I were working together, and I needed to give you some feedback, and I said, oh, you know, I. I don't want Matt not to like me. I really like you. 
and uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't necessarily be wise for me to decide not to give you that feedback that's going to help you grow. So using compassion, but then bringing that wisdom in. And, and sometimes as a leader, you do need to make good decisions, but make them with the intention to be of benefit to others. And one of the things that, that we really saw, you know, many of the leaders that we spoke with, they would walk into every situation every time they met with one of their employees, but also with their clients and their focus, their intention was, how can I be of service? How can I be of benefit in this meeting? And they made that as their mantra in how they showed up in their everyday work life. And I think setting, one, deciding that it's valuable to you and then setting that intention in terms of how you show up are two great ways to get started and bringing more compassion into your work. Absolutely. That's such great stuff. Wow. We appreciate it, Jacqueline. Jacqueline Carter, wonderful insights uh, in her book, The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results And uh, she really is uh, teaching us there is power, folks, in power and also the corruptibility of a potential that also can be there if we're not careful. We do need to watch out. That's not just something grandma and grandpa used to teach us. That's some uh, new data as well. So we will continue the journey, folks. Uh, Take a little break here. When we come back, we will be talking about some empty news, getting into the headlines you don't always hear. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the empty news segment of the show. Dr. Matt here. And, um, you know, poor police officers. They're, they're constantly have to be ready for attacks. They have to wear all that gear to make sure they're safe. But what do you do when you're a police officer and somebody hits you with potato chips? A man is facing charges after police say he assaulted two officers in North Austin grocery store last week. According to an affidavit, police responded to the store after employees said that the man and women were riding the store's electric carts outside and they had been asked to leave, but they wouldn't. Wow. Sounds like something that Becca would do on a date. <laughs> uh, would do, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Definitely haven't done before. Cart, right? Cart sure. racing, yeah. Never. But never. never. No. <laughs> As she says, maybe with, would with a Band-Aid on her chin. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Austin police officer uh, working security at the store told the suspects to leave the premises. The male, identified as 30-year-old Tracy Owens, stated he wasn't going to leave. He became irate when the officer attempted to place him under arrest. Owens allegedly pulled away from the officer and struck him with a bag of potato chips, Ooh. causing the bag to explode. Wow. Owens then assaulted a police officer and was t- uh, test or was tased before being arrested. That's a big deal. I, I'll bet you that's probably the one time in the guy's life, the police officers at least, that he's really glad that potato yeah. chips are mostly air. Yeah. You, but he broke a lot of chips. That's, that's the true. downside to this. I mean, look at it that way. Just By the wonder way, if he has what a is chips? chip on his shoulder about it. <laughs> he, does, he has chips everywhere. What does chips stand for? California Highway Patrol? Exactly. Okay. But this happened in Austin, Texas. Right. So it's a woman uh, was jailed for setting a motel on fire with bur- a burning package of ham. Mm. I love, I love roasted ham. Wow. Yeah. A uh, North Alabama woman is jailed on felony arson charges for setting fire to a package of ham, tossing it into the garbage can at a motel. 
According to police, Beverly Harrison, 62 years old, is accused of setting the fire that caused an, an explosion at an inn last month. Wow, it got ugly fast. Caused an explosion. Yeah. yeah sometimes the ham has a lot of fat and mm. other. Um, investigators learned. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. Wow. Wow. I pulled that off YouTube. Wow. That was uh, spam, but was, similar explosive Yeah. By the capability. way, that spam will ruin it. Uh, <laughs> investigators learned family had brought Harrison a pack of ham to eat, and she didn't want the ham. The, she told the police after the family left, she set the ham on fire and she put it in the garbage can. Wow, she really didn't want that ham. <laughs> of then, course, what would you do <laughs> when the smoke didn't want this ham? <laughs> Throw it away. I mean, there's a lot of things. Um, I, she wanted smoked ham. Oh, which she got. That's good. She grabbed her dog. She left the room, and smoke that. filled up the room. And then uh, the fire caused a can of butane fuel to explode as well. It was next to the ham, apparently. Okay. Wait, yeah, the where did the butane fuel come from? Probably for her lighter, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. That could be it. Then it hit the curtains and then bada boom, bada bang. <laughs> there you go. That's how it goes. Uh janitor is looking to download Xbox games, uh and when he was doing so he found um that they were filled with hard drives that had secret Florida taxpayer information. I hate it when that happens. That's why I don't play video games. Right. <laughs> Four Florida Department of Re- uh, Department of Revenue, um, I guess, investigate or hard drives apparently went missing last month. Contained secret information about taxpayers, but state police say 21-year-old Andrew Reed found something better at a store on the drives um, of his Xbox game. So apparently, somebody had transferred the information to his Xbox games. Hard well, he drive? stole the hard drives from the tax office. He was a janitor cleaning the office building. Oh, stole and the then hard he drives. hid the hard drive. He thought, this is going to be great. I can just download Xbox games onto these. Oh, yeah. And I can save it. I can have so much more space. Oh, yeah. you know. And he never actually found that it had all these tax files from all these people all well, over the state of Florida. Honestly, thank heavens, right? Because yeah. he could have done their taxes. He could have used all of that information. Yeah, he came back and said, I'm really sorry. I just wanted to download some Xbox games, you know. He had no idea this information was on there. Oh, wow. Such a huge like personal information data breach. But, yeah, it's fine. They just have to delete all the racing games and stuff he had on there because he likes to, you know, race yeah. cars. Um, by the way, be careful when you're out in your yard and you, like, pick up a rock. Mm. It may not just be a rock. It could be a diamond. Whoa. Yeah, scientists have found that fragments of a meteorite which crashed to Earth a decade ago may have come from a lost planet in our solar system. A new study claims the uh, Almahada Sida meteorite landed in the Nubian Desert in October of 2008, and um, diamonds on the inside were formed by a protoplanet about 4.55 billion years ago. Wow. I hate protoplanet. <laughs> Diamond dust. It's true. That are about yeah. four and a half billion years old. Does that add extra value to the diamonds? It should. Absolutely. It has a, a better backstory than we I found it in so. a mine somewhere. Will you marry me? My love for you is out of this world. <laughs> wow. Uh, th- I think so. This is not just any wedding ring. This is uh, from the Nubian Desert hmm. and was uh, a, a former protoplanet of around four and a half billion years ago. It's that kind of diamond. Uh, We demonstrate that these large diamonds cannot be the result of shock, but rather the growth that has taken place within a planet. 
according to a planetary scientist, Philippe Gillet. Wow. Yeah. By the way, a lost planet. So what she's wearing on her hand and, and her ring is a lost planet. Is that what it is? Uh-huh. It was just a piece of coal that got crushed into a, nope. into a dime. Nope. All right. Nope. It's the, innards, it's the innards of a planet, a protoplanet. Hmm. Boy. I'm telling you. Stuff you learn on this show. Don't assault a police officer. Yes. Don't burn the ham if this you don't like true. it. Don't use hard drives from the, the Florida tax, tax Revenue Office. To download Xbox games, yeah. And that may not be a diamond. That may be a the, protoplanet. The inside of a planet. Four and a half billion years old. Man. Lessons learned. Education. Lessons learned. Okay, fun stuff. Up next, we're going to talk to our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's time to go visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. How are we doing? Brian Logan in the house today. I did Father. not. Brian Logan. How are you, Brian? Oh, I didn't hear that. I was talking. I was interrupted by Don Sheila line. Oh. <laughs> Don will get you. <laughs> Brian, how are you, brother? I'm blessed. You are blessed. I am. You're blessed with rugged morning. good looks and... I wouldn't uh, say they're rugged. They're just straight up good looks. They're just oh. there's a little ruggedness. I was being more simple. I just you know I just rugged I just... is like a mountain man. <laughs> yeah, no, that's ragged. <laughs> <laughs> ragged good looks. Yeah. He has some ragged good looks. That's because I have to shave. That's why. So did you hear about this? Um, uh, did you hear about this diamond that they found? No. You guys, I'm sure you guys like on the first floor. Yeah. No. 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 The building. No. Student no. left it? Yeah, some student left a diamond. No, they had a diamond that, that is four and a half billion years old that came from a planet that landed as a meteorite oh, yeah, yeah, on this yeah. Earth. Huh. How the cool is that? Superpowers? Interessante. Yeah, and so and then apparently some guy can now fly because of it. Superman. Yeah, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. He's got rugged good looks. That's my cousin. Is it? <laughs> and this is a week before Infinity War? Weird. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Interesting. Oh yes, the rugged good looks mm. and the diamond. It's already it's like showed up a little early. Something's going <laughs> on. So to have Brian Logan on board, uh, we must oh, yeah. have he's a lot. Diamond. He's mm. your diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> so what's on the show today, gentlemen? Uh, Elijah Bryant, BYU men's basketball player, has declared for the NBA draft and will hire an agent. He's done at BYU. He's graduating. He will join us on the program to discuss the decision and how he plans to make the NBA. Really? Yeah. So that's certainly a big loss for the BYU men's basketball team. Exciting for Elijah. Good luck to him. We're uh, hopeful that he'll have a, a wonderful pro career. But it's a big loss for BYU hoops. He was the leading scorer last year, 18 a game. Uh, really good player, 42% from three. So we'll discuss. Was he eligible to stay one more year if he wanted? Yeah. Yep. Okay. He, he, had, uh, he would have been a senior. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he's out, gone. He's, he's gone. Sayonara. So back-to-back years, uh, the leading scorer for BYU hoops uh, is leaving the team early. Oh, boy. Is that, how, do you, how do you feel about that? Is that the new norm? We'll that discuss hurts, that as well. yeah. How do you feel about that? I'm sad. I was sad, too, when I heard the news. I mean, it's like can, we got to keep some of these people. Yeah, you have this weird balance, right, between uh, wanting the team's success and then the success of the individual. Yeah, you want them to. Those can live in harmony, but sometimes there's a little. 
I don't know if discord's the right word, but Elijah Bryant's tension. a big loss. Yeah, you need tension. There's some tension there. Mm-hmm. And we'll discuss the decision for Yoli Childs now, who's weighing oh, yeah. whether he should go pro, how important that is for BYU Hoops now, what that means. Oh, boy. It changes yeah. the whole game. Literally. Know, it's, 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 it's tough because of just BYU and how unique BYU is. And, I mean, I always say this from a football standpoint, but you can say it across all sports. Um you know, it's it's just not traditionally you're going to get the top guys, you know, yeah. top athletes. And so you develop them, you know, like Bronco did with me, for example, being 5'6", yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> it yeah but, doesn't you, happen. but you play like a 5'9", five, 5'20". Five, mm, I would say about 6'13". <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. it's 7'1". No. Wow. I, I think I probably played about 6'1". You do. You but, absolutely but, do. Brian Logan, the legend But, but my, my point is that um, – you know, if you have guys that come in that are developed, that, you know, for the, over the last couple of years and they end up leaving early, you know, how, how much more challenging is it for you to continue to get guys that you, if, that you can't develop? If you can't develop them, um, you know, you kind of have um, this, this drop off, right? The gap where right. other schools, they can have one and dones. Yeah. Um, you know, four or five guys can leave, but they have three, four guys recruits coming in that are, you know, top five or top 10 in the program. So, yeah. And what role does. The it, these players not going to the NBA have in this process. So if Eric yeah, Mika was yeah. in the NBA, it's a little easier to swallow, right? He's in Italy, so it's right. like you couldn't have waited waited a year, right? Because I I don't you, know you don't want to be here. I, you know? I, I go into but the football locker room. Elijah's right? graduating, so it's kind of a different academic right. situation for him. But, so, but to your point, I go to the, I go into the football locker room, right? And all the guys that have played or are playing. In the NFL, it's nice, right? You see all the all the yeah. nice helmets and everything like that. And I mean, if you if you if, if you were a recruit and you saw the CFL or Arena Football like, helmet jerseys, you'd be right. like, "What?" Like, you're always not bragging. Hey, we yeah. got a guy in the Italian Pro League. Like right. initially, you may yeah. say, "Hey, we can make your pro dreams come true." Right, one uh, way or overseas. Another. Right, and BYU's had great success doing that. Uh, BYU does have an NBA player in Kyle Collinsworth, which is great. An undrafted guy. Um, yeah. Like uh, Elijah feeling. Bryan is not likely to be drafted. Maybe he works his way into the second round through his workouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Kyle Collinsworth, undrafted. Yeah. Brand Davies, undrafted. Yeah. Those were guys that at least uh, got a season or two in the NBA. They got opportunities, yeah. Which was overachieving in my mind. No, absolutely. Given their collegiate careers. By the way, Brandon Davies is playing in Lithuania. Really? They, uh, he had 21 points in a EuroLeague game last night. He was all over Holler. the place. See? Holler. <laughs> Plus, it's an empty. <laughs> How do you say that in Lithuanian? Yeah. That's the ball, boys. Yeah. There's some ways. Uh, tonight's the uh, men's volleyball conference tournament semifinals. You can watch Ooh. that live on BOE TV. We'll talk about the match with USC tonight. Steve Vale, the, uh, the guy that calls the games with me, he's going to join, join <laughs> us uh, in studio. Excellent. See, and that's why I love you guys. Talented, multifaceted. You call volleyball, and Brian looks ruggedly good-looking all the time. Facts. Totally factual information. Well, gentlemen, have a great show. Knock them dead and keep working on your Lithuanian. Um, hey, as, we, as you know, we like to always wrap up the show with a hero story. Today's hero is a Rhode Island teen held a hero after saving a woman's life. Scott Albanisa works as a busboy at a diner in Rhode Island. March 3rd was like any other Saturday night at a restaurant until the 18-year-old heard screams of help from a customer that was choking. He looked and saw her choking. He went immediately, turned and stood her up and then did the Heimlich maneuver in the aisle. And uh, Albanisa was in the right place at the right time, clearing 
tables next to the very booth where the woman and her husband were sitting. After about three times of trying to do the Heimlich maneuver, the food unlodged, and he saved her life. Quite honestly, it uh, he just said, boy, I'm lucky to be of help. I'm glad it turned out okay. Even more amazingly, Albanisa had only just learned the technique a few days prior to the incident thanks to a high school elective course called Lifesaver. And uh, so did what he could. 15-year-old Scott Albanisa is the hero of the day, knowing how to do what he needed to do, and he did it. That's what makes a hero, my friends. And that's the show. That's it for us. Uh, We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. But uh, stick with BYU Broadcasting because BYU Sports Nation is up next.